Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 86 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the question elemental Gottlieb. And I, I know what this one is, man. I can I can answer this. Is that all right? Yeah, answer away. Go ahead. All right. So this is our monthly bonus episode. We started doing this about last month. That has come as a response to us hitting a stretch goal on our patrons. So thank you, or Patreon. So thank you to all the patrons. For your support and everything, we couldn't be doing this without you, and we really appreciate it. Uh, Every week, we ask the game Discord four questions, and they always give us a bunch of awesome questions, and we only answer one per week. And the the question that we deem the best generally gets answered on the show, and then we send them out a pack of sleeves as a thank you. And now we're just going to do hella. Yeah, there's there's so many questions here. This might be like a six or seven hour podcast. A lot of interesting, great questions. Though. I'm looking forward to all of them, but there there's so many questions. We have taken on a lot here. I'm happy to do it, though. Like you said, our, our patrons are everything. They're the reason we're able to do this every week. Uh, they deserve some some question time, and I'm happy to answer all these questions. Word. So just get into it. Let's do it. Let's get right into it. The first question is from Salad. And how has magic affected your relationships? Uh, For me personally, I have formed a lot of great relationships through magic. And I started playing magic at an early enough age where, I don't know, I I feel like by the time I had good relationships and knew how to form good relationships, I was just so immersed in magic that I don't have a super close friend who was not at one point involved in magic. That is certainly to my detriment to some degree, right? But like that's that's just kind of how it is for me. Uh, yeah, very different on my side. It, it certainly magic uh, played a larger role as my life went on, even though it's always been there. You know, I've been playing since 94, 95-ish and magic has always been around, but it, it didn't really become a huge part of my friend group and even my personality for a very long time. It's something that I kept hidden. I always joked that I was in the conjurer's closet for many years and <laughs> didn't really talk much about magic and, you know, kind of backburnered it. So my experience is very different, but on the whole, magic has been such a positive thing in my life that it's it's brought so many amazing relationships into my life. It's helped me get through difficult situations, difficult problems I've had in my own life. Uh, Using magic as an outlet got me away from things which were not beneficial to me. So I I think magic's effect on my relationships has been tremendously beneficial. But also I make sure that's the case. I never put magic before the really important people in my life. You'll hear me skip tournaments because I have something to do with my wife and I'll do so happily. But I think on the whole, magic has just been a a constant boon throughout my life. 
Kevcon asks, do we all get sleeves for having our questions answered? And the, the answer to that is no, but we are, we're going to pick our favorite five after the show, or I'm going to pick my favorite five. Yeah. yeah. I'm, just- I'm disclaiming this whole, uh, this whole procedure. I don't want anything to do with it. I, I can't possibly choose five questions out of these. They're all so good. So I'm putting Jerry in charge. So if you are dissatisfied with who he chooses, go ahead and yell at Jerry, not me. Maybe I'll only pick four. We'll see. Whatever you're going to do. Maybe there will be such a steep drop off. Liam asks, why is less sometimes more? I feel like you want to answer this one. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I could come up with some silly answers to this. Uh, This is a very open-ended, broad question. But, you know, I could point to the, the marrow kind of mantra, restrictions breed creativity, having your answers constrained and and having your your world constrained can certainly lead you to new creations, new discoveries. But I could take this question in a million directions. Hopefully Liam is satisfied with that very brief answer. Yeah, I less is sometimes more, but I think generally what the question means is like why is less sometimes correct? And there's there's a lot of answers for that. Right. All about context there. Right. Crute asks, what do you like most and least about magic? So I'll I'll go first. Uh, What I like the most is just this endless font of creativity that magic inspires in me. I get something to think about, a a new problem to solve literally every day. There's always something for me to consider, something for me to ponder. And I really appreciate having something that can occupy so much of my mental space on a day-to-day basis. As far as what I like the least, I dislike how hard it is for me to return to the Pro Tour. I I mean, I guess I... If it were hard, it wouldn't be worth doing. Okay, let me me rephrase that. I don't mind the challenge. I mind the circumstances under which I have to partake the challenge, if that makes sense. Basically, I don't like PPTQs and I don't like RPTQs. (laughs) That's that's Magic Online PTQs. Yeah, they're okay. They're okay. I like playing live. I, I always have. I, I think as time has gone on, I've gotten more comfortable playing live. But you're right. Magic Online PTQs is a good approximation of the old system. Grand Prix. They're far away, especially now that I live in Seattle. But I'll be attending a lot more Grand Prix. You know, since I moved out here, there really hasn't been too much happening on the West Coast, short of Sacramento. But there's a, a nice stretch of GPs coming up that I'll be able to hit. And I'm definitely looking forward to it. Sacramento, which you skipped. I did. M19 Limited wasn't doing it for me. Sorry. I I don't blame you there. Okay. Matt Nelson, uh, did I answer this? What do I like most? I don't know. Just everything. Everything is rad. Like the the bottomless puzzle, the relationships, the the puzzle gets me a lot. It's, It's a big part of it for sure. Yep. And least, I guess, is not being able to teleport. Like I don't mind traveling so much. It's just like I don't like being restricted on what I can do with my time. Right. Well, I'm sure that as the years have gone on, that's gotten a little easier, right? There's certainly more you can get done at this point while traveling than you could have, say, 10 years ago. There's more, but it's still just like I spent X amount of time in transit and boarding flights and waiting in lines and like trying to find a place to charge my devices and just like all this nonsense yeah, the boarding and, is what really gets me, right? If you actually put me on the plane, like I can, I can make that work. I can do what I need to do. But all yeah. the boarding and deplaning and all that stuff is what gets really frustrating. Time just gets incinerated and time is super important. True. And we make those sacrifices to go to magic tournaments, which also eats up time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do enjoy playing online and wish that I could get, I guess, like play higher stakes online so that I wouldn't have to incinerate all that time. Anyway, Matt Nelson asks, how do you handle 
learning slumps where you're feeling lazy? Well, kind of answer your own question. Stop being lazy. You're being lazy because you don't feel the motivation to want to do this thing. Like people who get bored just basically don't have a thing that they're super passionate about, right? Like a, a thing that you could be happy doing all the all the time. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. And, you know, certainly things factor into that, like depression is like certainly a thing that I can relate to where it's like even these things that I enjoy doing, I, I basically just like can't bring myself to do. Like they just do not feel like they would bring me any sort of joy whatsoever. So like I kind of get that aspect of it, but that's like a whole other thing, I think. It's just like if if you are feeling lazy, it's just like, well, how invested are you? And maybe if you're not as invested as you think you are, then maybe your priorities have to change. But if you can see that you were in a learning slump, isn't that motivation enough? Yeah, I think you did a really good job of pointing to what my eventual answer is going to be, because the issue here is not the learning slump, it's the laziness. And for me, if, if I'm lazy, that's indicative of something else that's going on. It really has nothing to do with magic or a, a learning slump. It's that when I lose motivation, there's some kind of mental issue or I'm not exercising enough, I'm not eating properly, you know, a million different things. But the actual thing that needs to be addressed is the laziness because as a person, like the root of my person is someone who's always learning and someone who loves learning and someone who loves exploring and thinking about things. So that's always going to be like my number one go-to activity. The problem is the times when I feel like I can't do any activity because I have no interest whatsoever. And that's what actually has to be addressed, at least on my part. Everyone's different, obviously. But for me, what's actually being raised as an issue is the laziness. That's what I need to get to the root of. Yeah. And the laziness might be causing the learning slump. That's true too. I mean, all this stuff feeds back into each other. It's hard to learn when you're not actively engaged and it's hard to be actively engaged when you're lazy. Sam Michaels asks, how can we help improve the cast? A lot of different ways. Uh, I think just getting the word out at this point is pretty important. Like we have a very, very solid listener base. And I think that we have kind of exhausted the normal channels through which people could figure out that we exist. So if you're not on Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or listen to podcasts or whatever, it, it's very possible that like this might be a podcast you want to listen to, but you just never knew it existed, right? So help us spread the word, like tell your friends, tell other people, share on social media, do all sorts of things like that to help us uh, so we can grow even more. And I think that would be rad. The other thing is any actionable, actionable feedback, anything that you think that we can realistically accomplish. It's just like, you know, Jerry says, um, too much or whatever. It's like, okay, that's, that's cool. Like that is stuff that I actually want to hear. Like I know I am bad at certain things and I want to try and work on them, but it will never be on the forefront of my mind unless someone tells me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Totally. There is like little weird things you can do that help spread the word of the game podcast. Like things like iTunes reviews, uh, re reviewing in like the Apple podcast app, stuff like Good that point. matters as far as the search algorithm. You know, it, it's weird because I would, <laughs> I, I wouldn't like go out and ask for this. Like, I feel like our listeners do so much for us already. Agreed. We have the best listeners in the world. Our discord is amazing. Our our Patreon has tremendous support and we're incredibly, incredibly appreciative of all that stuff. So it's like asking anyone to do anything more feels kind of silly given how much 
our fans do for us. But since you asked, I, I'm happy to provide it. It's just word of mouth at this point. Basically, all the default ways of getting magic information we have covered. We're on Twitter. We're on Star City. We're on all these different places. So it, it's just telling your friends, hey, did you listen to the game podcast? They said some really cool stuff. And when they say, I don't listen to podcasts, which is something I hear all the time, you say, no, you listen to this one. Uh, and I think we've converted a lot of people to podcasts who are like, I'm not a podcast person. Well, now they listen to the game podcast and hopefully we opened up a whole new world to them. I was not a podcast person three years ago. Me neither. I, until I had a driving commute, I had no interest in podcasts whatsoever. I don't know. I was always interested in the idea of it, but I was just like, give me some good stuff and people never could. And then like now I have like a solid base of things that I can listen to. And now it's just like, man, I don't even have time to listen to all this awesome stuff. Right. There's a lot of podcasts I've had to work out of my my weekly routine now that I'm not driving to work anymore. But also now I listen trying to learn and trying to see what other podcasts are doing and being like, oh, can we right. maybe integrate this into the game podcast? So it's taken on a whole new a whole new lens under which I listen to podcasts. Like I said, I, I think everyone does so much for us already. It's hard to ask, but those are the the little things you could do. And we are appreciative of everything you do to help the game podcast for real. Yes, Absolutely. Another couple things that I thought of are uh, like we, we are currently in the market for another stretch goal. That's true. That's true. Our stretch goals have been a little stagnant for a while. I would love to hear some good ideas on that. Yeah. So and, and that's kind of the thing. It's just like we are guessing like, oh, would people like sleeves? Is this something people would be interested in? Like the tokens, playmats, all of this stuff. Right. And it's like we don't actually know like how much this stuff moves the needle for like you know, pe- people would really enjoy having this stuff or being able to have access to it, right? And, you know, just tell us. Tell us tell us what you want. We'll do it. Yep, we're here for you. Darkling Tim asks, how do you maintain focus for 15 plus rounds in a tournament? And the answer to that is pretty easy. It is you generally don't. So you're saying your focus will generally slip at some point throughout a tournament? Almost certainly. There are things that I could be doing better you know, my body's a temple. I should not be smoking cigarettes. I should not be eating carbs during tournaments, at least me personally, because it makes me super tired. I could be in better shape. All these various things, drink more water, all, all the cliche stuff that you hear is pretty reasonable. If I were doing all of those things, maybe I would not get fatigued at the end of 15 rounds. Maybe I'd be like, all right, let's do it again. Back in my younger days, I would just like stay up all night at Origins, just drafting in the middle of the night, right? I can't do that anymore. Yeah, I also cannot do that anymore. I certainly have focus drops. They happen more regularly than they used to. I think that it's just something you have to accept as an inevitability and take the steps you can to prevent it. But there's probably not many players out there who aren't losing focus at some point throughout the day. And also try and break things down into more manageable like subgroups, like you're saying, maintaining focus for 15 plus rounds. Well, don't think of things that way. Think of it as maintaining focus through one game. You just have to make it through this game, focus as intently as you can on this one game, and then you'll address the next game when the time comes for it. And you can find that focus again, but it doesn't have to be an all day thing. You can let your focus down at times when it's time to play the game in front of you, your focus turns on and you're as sharp as possible. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I think the question is mostly... For like, you know, they, they probably played 15 rounds and found their focus slipping at various times and then thought about it over the course of like, oh, it was 15 rounds. That's probably why. Like, how do I prevent this? So I don't think it's just like, how do you stay focused for 18 hours in a row or whatever? It's like, well, good luck, you know? Right, 
Right. And and for me personally, my focus as the day goes on, I, I don't think I'm any more apt to play poorly towards the end of the day than I am to play poorly early in the day. Like everything's on the table for me playing poorly. I can play poorly at any time, I promise you. And I don't think it trends upward as the day goes on. It's just sometimes my focus slips. The first round always gets me. That's the hardest one for me. Yeah. For a long time, I resisted playing games before a tournament. Like you know, people always be like, oh, you'd, you'd be at a sealed tournament. And people say, oh, let's jam a game before our buys end or whatever. And I always be like, no, no, I like to stay as fresh as possible and play as little magic as possible. I don't believe in that anymore. Uh, I always like to play a few games before the day starts if I can. See, I don't. I've played games and felt sharp and then played round one and then just felt really dumb. And I'm just like, well, that doesn't make any sense because like I even tried to do the whole like warm up game thing and like felt good about it. So I don't know. Yeah. And like I said, I'm still vulnerable to making a mistake at any time. I felt cleaner in the early rounds doing that. So you have to try it, see what works for you. If it does help, go with it. If not, uh, you don't have to play games before the tournament starts. That, that's fine. Find what works for you. Yep. Crute asks, what's your favorite format in history and why is it cube? I would not say that my favorite format is cube, but I have a lot of respect for people who do it because it is a nice you know, gathering of all of these awesome cards throughout Magic's history. So I can't, I certainly can't fault people for wanting to play fun, awesome Magic with cool cards, you know? Uh, for me, it was extended circa 2002. It was extended where, like, Revise had rotated out, but they kept the dual lands in. And it was a very high-powered format with a bunch of sweet cards, Force of Will, Oath of Druids, Reanimate, etc. I don't know. It was just, like, when I was getting into Magic, so there's definitely some nostalgia at play, but I also just really thought the format was very good. It's like, it, it would be a good version of what Legacy should be. My answer to this question is also going to call back to an earlier format. And again, I, I think that there's a lot of nostalgia going on. I would say like 2007, 2008-ish Legacy would be my answer. And I can't point to any specific gameplay aspects or you know, any one particular deck. It just everything felt very unexplored, undiscovered, very interesting. It was also at a time when I was just getting really back into magic pretty aggressively. All these possibilities were opening up before me and I was learning legacy as I went. Just a really fun time in magic for me. So I, I'm not saying it's the best format in history, but it's, it was definitely my favorite format. Yeah, I think our answers are basically the same. Yeah. Mason Clark asks, what's one thing you want to improve on in Magic? I, a, a few years ago, basically once I left my internship at Wizards of the Coast, when I came back and was just like, I want to succeed on the Pro Tours. Like, that is what I want to do. I did everything in my power to focus on that and figure out what I was doing wrong. And I have obviously come a long way. Like, I've put it put up two top eights since then. So go me, but I still have a long way to go. So I feel like there's so many things I want to improve on, but the, just one, the, just name one. The briefest answer I can give is just like clean technical play on board, obvious optimal play. I think I'm very good at long-term planning, but moment to moment decision-making can falter at times. Evan K asks thoughts on single archetype cards like Liliana good for the game question mark. My, my thoughts on this are yes. I do think that there should be 
powerful cards at higher rarity where someone can open this in a pack and be like, oh, sweet, what can I do with this? Like, Liliana tells you to go look for other zombies, go acquire other zombies, and I think that is awesome. Now, that being on a Planeswalker and, like, a very iconic Planeswalker, I'm not sure how I feel about meshing those two worlds because I feel like when a Liliana comes out, you have a certain amount of expectation for that card and people gravitate towards that card and they want to build around a Liliana and not necessarily do what this Liliana tells them to do. So I don't know if that's right or not. That's just like kind of my take on it. Uh, I feel the opposite way. I think it's fantastic, especially in terms of Planeswalker design to not just have Planeswalkers be like the most powerful thing you can do at that mana cost, which they often feel like. And I think the fact that here is a somewhat powerful black Planeswalker, but it does not go in every conceivable black deck. It only is in a deck that maximizes these abilities. That's exactly what I want to see Planeswalkers do going forward. I want them to feel unique. I want them to be, I want there to be room for diversity in color types. Because a lot of times it just feels like color is defined by the Planeswalkers present at the top end and the other, you know, sticky threats, things like Scarab God and whatnot. So I I really liked M19's approach to Planeswalker design and the fact that the Planeswalkers were much more narrow than they had been in the past. That's legit, but I feel like you could do narrow without specifically calling out to zombie. There, there are Planeswalkers that are good with creatures, for example, and I feel like that is kind of like this narrow subset or like calling out to spells. Like, I, I think that those are ways that you can do things without... You know, like you, I, I got past a Liliana at uh, GP Chiba and I just passed it. Should that happen? Like, that just seems so absurd to me. Well, I guess it, it really depends what is meant by archetype in this question, right? Because you can either see archetype as capturing the type of planeswalkers you're talking about, ones that are spell heavier, ones that, you know, ones that go beyond the realm of tribal. So I don't think tribal is the only way to do these narrower planeswalkers. I just think there needs to be some focusing point, something that differentiates these cards from, you know, just being these raw balls of stats and and powerful numbers and powerful sources of card advantage that just dictate every single game in which they're played. Yeah, I, I think Domri is maybe the best case for this. Yeah, Domri's a really interesting planeswalker. It's very powerful, format defining in a lot of ways. It was it was omnipresent throughout its entire time in standard, but it required some deck building concessions, and not every single red green deck had to do exactly that. There were other ways to build red green decks. All right, Sidus asks, "What are your favorite blocks or sets?" For me, I think the Ravnicas are pretty easy. One one like I guess sort of. Truth to my magic career is that I have traditionally done very well during Mirrodin blocks, like specifically in Limited. <laughs> That's a weird so description. Like, I know. Well, I, I just like get the artifact theme, right? Like I understand how to like push that super hard and just get the most out of those cards and like be able to find cards that are undervalued and stuff like that. Like for whatever reason, I'm just hella good at that. That's interesting because there is like a strategic point there. Like these cards are available to every single player at the table by virtue of being artifacts. And that's the environment under which you thrive. Look, man, I just, I find something that no one else wants. It just, it makes it so I have a great deck every time. Seems like a good, a good way to approach that type of format. I wouldn't necessarily say that like Mirrodin is my favorite or whatever, you know, it's just like those, whenever a Mirrodin comes around or an artifact block, I'm like, Ooh. Okay. 
That's all. If, if I had to answer this question, I would say Shadow Moore Eventide block. And I can't tell you why. Just something about it resonated with me. Uh, it was a time when I was getting back into tournament magic again. I had just moved to Las Vegas and I, I was playing in magic stores for the first time in like 10 years or something like that. I've been playing some magic online, but only went back into storefronts at, at, at this point. Uh, and I just remember having a lot of fun drafting this set and something about it resonated with me and pulled me back in wholeheartedly to magic. I drafted that format a lot too. Like this was when I was living in Iowa and was surrounded by a bunch of people who were just like not degenerate drafters. Like we weren't drafting for like money necessarily, but people just wanted to draft all the time. Yeah. I remember loving that limited set. I I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it was great. Like we, we were never like, okay, like we're done. Like we're sick of it. It just wasn't a thing that ever happened. Right. Always something new to discover with that set. Matt Nelson asks, when did you not let games impact you emotionally? I'm not super clear if it, he means when as like if he's looking for a time when we let them not impact us emotionally or saying like a point in our lives. I guess I'll answer it as a point in my life. I was going to answer it the other way. Okay, that's fine. We can we can do it two separate ways. Yeah. I, I would say that throughout a lot of my life, I was a sore loser. For sure. Like I was the kid getting thrown out of Little League games because he, he hated losing. It took me a long time to grow out of that. Is that is and that why you and Jason Ford are friends? Probably. It, it probably plays into our uh, mutual understanding of each other. But maybe unlike Jason Ford, and he doesn't listen to this podcast, I'm going to have to tell him to listen. Maybe unlike him, I do think I've grown out of it. I think when the rest of my life really came together, like the non-gaming aspects, like I found a career I was happy with. I met my wife. I was just in a more stable place. I kind of was able to put gaming and competing in perspective and start to find some of my sportsmanship. And honestly, it's been all upside for me. I I appreciate gaming much more now that I have this kind of different take on sportsmanship because I still want to win feverishly. I still care a lot about winning, but I think I now have the maturity to understand you don't always get what you want. And it's important to still be uh, positive and generally a good person to be around even when things are not going your way. Okay. I guess we are answering this question the same way. I thought you meant you're going to answer like a specific point in time. Like you lost this, like you lost round 14 of PT origins or whatever. (laughs) Oh no, no, I, I don't have any specific instance I can think of. No, I, I mirror a lot of your sentiments. I feel like I was mostly a, well, almost certainly specifically because of this, I was a poor loser because I was unhappy. And there were like a a lot of things that went into it, right? Where it's just like, you know, maybe I felt just kind of like a victim the, like my entire life basically, where it's just like, man, I, I keep getting like shit on or whatever. And why does this keep happening? Like, I deserve to, like, have something go right. Why can't it be, like, this magic game that I, like, pour my heart and soul into? You know, something along those lines. Right. And then I would lose to a person. And it's, like, if they were, like, very good or better than me or, or like, we had, like, a really pleasant match or whatever, it almost never, like, affected me. It was just, like, okay, yeah, like, you know, this this person beat me and I need to try harder, right? And then I would like lose to someone who I thought was bad or like made a bunch of mistakes or whatever. And I'd just be like, why? Why this? And many, many years later, I have a perspective shift. I no longer feel that way. And th- things in my life are 
definitely going better. I think that my life is awesome. And some of that is, again, that change of perspective where it's just like, I, I don't feel like a victim anymore necessarily. It's like if bad things are happening in my life, it is within my power to fix them. And if I do not fix them, then it's on me. So it's just like taking more responsibility and more control has made me a lot happier in life. And then when you are happy, it's just like, you know, you lose this game, you lose this tournament, like there are going to be so many more. But also another thing that makes it easier is like once you do have some success, because then it's not like this thing that has eluded you, right? It's like people say the, you know, act like you've been here before thing. And I think that is like kind of true where once you have like made a top eight, it it's like just the the whole game gets easier. I can buy that. I, I can buy there being a lot of relief to having accomplished like some segment of your goals. But I, I do think it's it's bigger than that. It's like a perspective about life and what's important. And also the empathy thing, like just realizing what that person is like to be around, how unpleasant it is for someone across the table to deal with someone who's having that kind of attitude. Once that clicks for you, I think that really pushes you to let the uh, emotional impact you know, roll off your back a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference there, which is why I didn't bring it up. Like, I do think that having more empathy and being more aware of just what is going on around me has made my life easier to some degree or is like, you know, made made me happier, basically, and has like changed my actions, which have made me happier. It's like, it's all related, mm. right? But I I don't feel like, the question is is necessarily that way. Like, I, I don't think that Matt is the type of person to like rage at his opponents when he loses, right? It's like, he, he probably just says very, you know, nice, polite, good game. And then just like goes off in a corner and like thinks about what happened, right? Mm, that's fair. That's fair. Like, I, I know Matt, like I, I have, I've met him and hung out with him a few times. So I highly doubt he's like that, you know? Fair but enough. Like, it, it can affect you differently. Like for, for you, it was like, you know, you, you have to like get ejected from little league games or whatever. And for me, it was like, I made sure that my opponents felt as bad as I did. Right. It manifested in a different way, but same emotion basically. Right. And then for Matt, it's probably just like, he's got a long drive home, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Better person maybe at the court than you and I were to start, yes. but. Yes, absolutely. Drew Sparger asks, what are Magic's biggest design mistakes? Uh, Phyrexian mana, pack it up. Boom, done. Uh, That's got to be that, right? Free spells? Yeah, free spells like, is, a, is a cleaner way to answer the question because that captures the Urza Saga stuff as well. Right. Yeah, so I, I just think any mana reduction is pretty dumb, and I think that that's pretty obvious. Also, just like artifacts type stuff or dismember type stuff that break the color pie. So again, like Phyrexian mana. Mm-hmm. Easy. Stephen Hanley asks, what is your favorite deck ever and why? Wow. I guess it's probably Callblade, just because I, I loved playing with it so much. I thought the games were very interesting. I thought mirrors were super interesting. I would literally just sit in moto queues all day, even when the format was like 50% Callblade and happily play, just because I, I was really into the mirrors. I thought they were super interesting. Uh, and then the other matchups were good too i mean you were favored against almost everyone else maybe everyone else but there were still interesting decision points all the time uh just a really fun deck to play and that's the first thing that comes to mind when i think of my favorite deck i don't know i I have a lot of favorites i could probably i can basically like go through you know standard formats and 
tell you what I was playing very heavily every year, starting with like Nether Go into Psychotog and continuing on through like Cobblade, Delver, Flash, etc. But favorite deck ever is probably the deck that Tommy Wallamy's got second with at Pro Tour New Orleans, I think, where he like lost in the finals to Kai and EDT had to eat his hat. You remember Which this? De- I, I don't remember this. This is I think uh, this is one in a period where I wasn't playing much magic or following much magic. This is uh it, it was called Operation Dumbo Drop. Odyssey had just come out. Uh this was a Bant control deck in extended, uh the format that I mentioned earlier, where it was just like swords to plowshares, factor fictions, whatever, and then just had call the herd because no one could beat a two for one. It was just like the best defensive and uh aggressive card. Yeah, I think we've actually talked about this deck on the show before. Likely. I talk about this deck a lot. Hearing you rattle off the the decks that you loved also reminded me of Mono Black Control from like Odyssey era against Psychotog. Awful Um, deck. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Not disputing that. But it was the first deck I built on Magic Online. After having not played competitively for a very long time, Magic Online was what brought me back in the fold initially. And I don't know how I found the mono, Mono Black Control deck, but I was playing it with like not Nantuko Shade, but Frozen Shade as a, as a budget consideration and still winning early on. And that eventually built my entire first Magic Online collection from just winning all the time with uh, Mono Black Control. And it got me full-blown back into the game. Word. Matt Nelson asks, what would make you step away from Magic? I think if there were better opportunities in some sort of content creation field, where, you know, maybe it's like, I have this great job casting or this great job, like, you know, podcasting and making videos or whatever. It's like, I I feel like somehow whatever I end up doing is going to be related to gaming to some degree. And I think another thing that can make me step away potentially is just like, maybe a better game gets made. Yeah, it would almost certainly have to be a game. That's the only real way I can see this happening. I've certainly taken like little hiatuses for magic and periods where my focus has turned elsewhere, but I always stay up to date and know what's going on in Magic. I don't see myself ever fully disconnecting from the game, but definitely, like you said, certain opportunities or just a, a new game that absolutely captures my uh, my fancy. It has me completely engaged in it and has me wanting to explore it to its depths. You know, I always say Magic is the best game ever made, but I hopefully have a lot more, many more years on this planet Uh, And who knows what that's going to bring our way. So we'll see. I think this question is supposed to be like, oh, you know, what if you won the lottery or whatever? And it's like, nah, nah, like (laughs) I would just go to more GPs and stuff. Probably yeah, fly around more, fly first class comfortably. That might might be the change. Dude, that would make things a lot easier. Yes, it would. Uh, Radisai asks, have you forced a deck that was wrong and why? Have you looked yeah. at my Twitter account, Radisai? Have you seen the nonsense that I've put forth into the universe? I do it yes. all the time. All the, all the time. And yes. it, it's kind of fun. Kind of fun. And I mean, that's just a bad reason, though. No, it, it is. But like the deeper reason is that I think there's something worth exploring. Now, learning is a good reason. Right. That's what I was getting to is that. Do I know ultimately that this may not yield any fruit uh, and is is kind of goofy and not something that can be tier one? Yes. But that doesn't mean there's not interactions or an understanding of the format to be gleaned from it. It's just like a different and probably honestly less effective way of getting that information. You can probably get to the core of a format much quicker actually playing the key decks of that format. But sometimes this stuff works out too. And 
you know, if you happen to hit the lottery, so to say, and and find that deck before everyone else does, you can you can gain a lot from it. Nah. No, never. <laughs> I I think people make up a bunch of ridiculous reasons to play bad decks to their friends. It's like, don't judge me. I want to play this deck. And here's my stupid reason why. Like, oh, I can't find cards or, oh, you know, I think it's good or this card changes things. And it's like, you know, that's not true. You know it. Are you, are you trying to convince me or yourself? You know? What listeners don't know is that Jerry is basically recreating a conversation we had just a week ago at Mox Boarding House as I showed up with an absolutely unplayable deck. Um, and he had to lecture me on how what I was doing was nonsense. And he was right, just just to be clear. Yeah, man, you you even lost to Cedric Phillips, so your deck had to be trash. Oh, it was. And uh, I, I certainly played poorly, too, which didn't help things. Mm. But yeah, he, he put the beatings on me. Crute asks, Jerry, do you regret leaving your position at Watsi? I don't know, Brian, do you want to answer this one? <laughs> How can I answer this one? Uh, I don't know. I, I think Jerry is happy doing what he does now. That's my answer to this question. I am very happy doing what I do. And I would like to make things, you know, creating stuff is rad. For right now, it's content. But like, I had, I had already left Wizards by the time cards were coming out, like, before cons got released and going through preview season and seeing people talk about the cards and like build decks with them. Like that was honestly just the coolest moment of my entire life because I got to work on this thing that just like touched so many people and people just had these like crazy, insane visceral reactions to things that I helped create. And there is basically no better feeling for me than that. That's a really cool answer. I never really thought about that side of the experience before, but I'm sure that was a really cool thing to see. Yeah, I, I didn't really think of it either because I had, I had left before that happened and had it happened the other way around, I'm not sure. <laughs> Might have reconsidered? Maybe, I don't know. But like, I, I certainly missed what I was doing. And like, I, I knew that if I came back, it was like, all right, you know, I can do what I was doing, but better in basically every facet. And it, it was kind of like a realization moment for me where like, I mean, I couldn't play Magic anymore, right? I had to sit and do other stuff. And some of that stuff was just like contemplate my existence, right? Right, which is always, you know, that's always a bad place to be, at least for me. I'm much better served playing Magic than doing that. Oh, man. I don't know. I, I think I came out like bigger, faster, stronger. Good for you. So I, I think that it was not a mistake. I'm glad I did it. I wish I could help create things while also doing the same things that I love and having the, the freedom that I enjoy and everything. Uh, unfortunately, that is not in the cards currently. And, you know, maybe that changes again, like maybe a new game comes out and it's like, okay, I'll work on magic and play this game or something. Who knows? But this was a very necessary step, I think, to becoming better at what it is I do. Cherry Thunder asks, who has made the most impactful contribution to competitive magic? And that's a broad question. Very broad a few names come to mind. I don't know how strongly I feel about any of them. I could be convinced that this is a, a bad answer, but Chris Pakula is one I would mention in terms of like cheating, having to go. I wasn't there during that period. I, I don't actually have firsthand experience of what Chris did, but the stories I've always heard was that he was instrumental in removing cheating from the game. If that is true, then that's tremendous. I mean, the game couldn't exist uh, if cheating was as rampant as it used to be. Uh, I would also say 
Patrick Chapin just for his writing. Yes. I think he's made a tremendous impact, at least as far as how I approach competitive magic. Uh, he was, I always give him the most credit as the person who taught me competitive magic. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people who came to the game around the same time as I did feel exactly the same way. So he would be up towards the top of my list as well. Yeah, Chapin is one of the people who I think has helped shape the way that I think. And there is basically like no bigger gift that someone could give me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I had the opportunity to tell Pat that once and it, it was good. I, I felt like it was something I had to like get off my chest and make sure that he knew because he made such an impact on how I approach the game and and how I really think about, you know, because the game is such a big part of my life, it affects how I think about everything in the world. So I can say that he played a part in shaping the way I approach my entire life, which is a pretty dramatic thing for a content creator to be able to do. So I definitely gave him props for that. And I, I think that you know, his contribution nowadays gets, gets downplayed a little bit just because he, I, I don't think he's engaged on the competitive scene as as heavily as he used to be. Uh, but when he was on, he was absolutely the best without question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people forget, man. Yep. They forget so quickly. Yep. My answer is uh, Scaphalias, who created the Pro Tour. Okay. End of story. Good, clean answer. Matt Nelson asks, how do you pick decks when you hate the best one? You, you play the best deck. Yeah. If, if it's the best, I probably don't hate it. Yeah. Like, what is there to hate? You're still playing Magic. No argument here. VTCLA asks, what is the most fun way to lose? I I don't know. This calls back to the earlier discussion of, like, playing bad decks and justifying it. And in my head, when I'm putting together that bad deck, I'm like, this is going to be so much fun. And then I lose. And I'm like... I hate losing more than anything on the planet. This is is not as fun as I thought it was going to be. Why didn't I just play what would actually give me a chance to win? There's a reason why Cedric plays humans at Mox Boarding House every week. He just wants to win, man. He he knows everything about the deck. He doesn't even try new things. It's not like he's... Like, he doesn't have that same insatiable thirst for knowledge that you and I share, right? He's just like, I want to play this deck and learn it. And then he doesn't care about like trying to make it better or whatever. He's like, ah, it's good. And I know how to play it. Yeah. He's, he's committed to humans. I mean, I think part of that is he just wants to like go buy a sandwich over in the restaurant part of Mox Boarding House with his winnings. But uh, still, regardless, I, I think his approach is admirable. I think I need to be more honest with myself and, and what really makes me happy. And it's probably just winning. I don't need to have anything clever in my deck box to feel good about my appearance at Mox Boarding House. I would like to win going forward. I, I like singing for my supper, you know? I like going to Mox and going like 3-1 or 4-0 oh, and then buying dinner with, with my winnings. It just feels so good. It's like, man, I put in an honest day's work to eat this sandwich. <laughs> I earned this. I did. Matt Nelson asks, how have you cultivated internal tenacity after defeats? That's That's some lawyer talk right there. Uh, it sounds lawyerish. Uh, I know Matt is not, is not a lawyer, but it, it does sound along those lines. It all calls back to like the, the one game at a time type mindset, the understanding what you have control of, what you don't. I think it's kind of like the same as, as the emotional response to losing question. Like I do too. You just have to move on. Yeah. And, and well, my, my real answer is figure out why it's making you feel bad. What do you feel bad about? Do you feel bad about losing? Why? Why do you want to win so much? Why is that so important? Is it because you 
haven't found the success that you think you deserve or want to have after like the fruits of your labor or whatever, or is it because your opponent was bad or, you know, all these sorts of things. Like, is it because like you needed to feel good because like something crappy happened to you earlier? Like what's the deal? It's, it's not about like, Oh, I lost it. Now I feel bad. How do I fix that? It's like, make your life better. That's it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's true. And again, easier said than done. There's a lot to that, but I think the questions are broader than just caring about the game of magic in the moment. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not easy for sure, but part of the path to recovery or whatever you want to call it is realizing that this stuff ultimately has nothing to do with magic. Right. It just right. doesn't. You feel bad after a loss for something that is outside of magic, straight up. Yeah. And it's a lot of equating like magic with your self-worth and all this other stuff that gets tangled up into what's generally an unhealthy mind state. Right. Magic could be competitive knitting or whatever. It doesn't matter. Yep. Crude asks, which great deck do you hate to play? I don't think I really hate playing anything. I occasionally like switching it up. Like I've I've played Dredge a bunch. I played Hypergenesis. I played Manalist Dredge, some on Moto. It's just like a lot of these decks are just not magic which is good every once in a while, but I would definitely not do all the time. When Valakut was really good, I played it, but I was never thrilled about it. I, I didn't really enjoy the gameplay all that much, but I played it. It was the best deck, so that's that's what I did. Yeah, I played it too. It's it's limit poker, whatever. Zimmerkins asks, who smells the best? I'm just going to say probably not me. Is, is that between me and you or just in general? Like in general, I really like the way my wife smells. Between you and I... You smoke cigarettes, so I'm just going to take this one. I, yeah, I, I think I get the edge here. That's the easy out. That's the yeah. easy out. Jonathan Carter asks, what non-magic skill has improved your performances most? Can I say, I don't know, just like life stuff in regards to non-magic skill? Like I got better at life and therefore got happier. And then lo and behold, my magic performances got better. Yeah, I, I'll allow it. I mean, I think that's what we're kind of one of the threads we keep returning to here. Fix your life, fix your magic game is is certainly a real thing. For me, I will. Uh, this is a very limited answer. I do not lose judge calls because of my lawyering background, and p- part of it is also that I don't do anything untoward. Like I, I don't try and get any edges through that style of play. But basically, I know how to like present an argument in a very clear, concise, and detailed manner. When I'm relaying the facts, I find that judge calls always go my way because I, I don't know. They just have ever since I started lawyer and training. It's like, okay, I'm going to lay these facts out. Things are going to be seen my way because I, I wouldn't have a judge here if the facts weren't in my favor, uh, unless I did something wrong and had to alert them on myself, you know? So it's been a weird thing to see really like, come to prominence in my game, but I'm, I'm good at describing the situation and I don't let my opponents twist facts. I'm sure we've all had judge calls where you see someone on the other side of the table start to change their language that little tiny bit. I go, no, 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 that, that's not what they said last time. And they go, okay, yeah, yeah, I said it differently before. And things always get resolved, I think, in the fair and correct manner. Yeah, one thing I will note is that integrity plays a large part here. And right. you're talking you're talking about always winning these judge calls, laying out the facts, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you have the truth on your side too. So that certainly helps. Right. But I, I, at the same time, I think we've all had an experience where you have laid out the truth and things have gone the other way. Yes. No, um, absolutely. But I, I did feel like that was one thing that you were 
leaving out, I, I think it was supposed to be implied, but Fair I enough. just wanted to make it clear right. that that was a big part of it. Nope. Good clarification for sure. That's, that's a good one. Is it too soon to talk about GP Toronto and our judge call? I think we just decided to let that one lie. Right? All right. Well, if, if someone ever sees us in real life, you know, by, by yeah, all we'll, means, we can tell it in person. It's probably not as good as, you know, you might think it is, but it's still pretty funny and it's, it ties into this. Yes. Liam asks, where do you see game in a year? God, that's such a broad question. And I, I want to answer, but I'm not gonna. Is that okay? Yeah, I also, no, I also don't. There are many things I would like to talk about right now in regards to this question, but we're not ready to talk about them. So things will look different in a year for the better. That's all I'll say. Uh, No matter what path we go down, I will also agree with that. Okay. And I think it's going to be rad no matter what. I agree. Traits asks... What mental notes do you prioritize and mantras do you have to prevent tilt and distraction? See above for all the other questions related to mental stuff and life. Uh, distraction, I, I would say, is a thing that actually matters because if I get bored during a game, I will often look over at other games. Huh, that is not a problem I have. And I, I am someone who's prone to distraction, but when I am in the midst of a game, I tend to dial in pretty hard. It's just like the well, what I mean, what if your opponent's thinking for 30 seconds or whatever? And I also think that I can multitask to some degree, but then it's like, ooh, this game's kind of interesting. And like, how does this person approach this matchup? And it's just like that, you know, in, insatiable quest for knowledge, right? I'm just like, well, I, ha- I have an opportunity to like maybe learn something here. So I'm going to do that while also letting my opponent think or whatever. I'll be honest with you. I'm probably the one who's thinking for 30 seconds in this scenario. Yeah, yeah. Like- <laughs> so... VTCLA asks, will you answer any meta questions like this one? And I'll be honest, I only answered this because I started reading it out loud before I actually read it. So <laughs> I'm just going to skip over. Got us. Yep, you got me good. I'm I'm just going to make it so VTCLA does not get any uh, packs of sleeves. Nice. Thanks, thanks for wasting our time, man. <laughs> Evan K asks, how do you choose which decks you want to learn the ins and outs of? All, but you can stack rank them. Some are, I guess, like a higher priority because I think they're more relevant. Some are higher priority because I think that they are skills that I lack currently. And some are higher priority because I think that they like branch out into other things. Like say a format has like these insane green aggro cards, right? Or like green mid-range cards. So it's like, well, you can play this green deck or this green deck or this green deck. And it's like, well, once you start learning the green decks, you kind of have like all of that in your portfolio, right? Right. I think you answered this question. I don't have anything to add. I think that was a good summation of how I basically go through what I'm going to pick up at any given time. Tight. Liam asks, who in your opinion is underrated right now? I have a good one. Yeah, give me yours first because I have to think for a second about this one. Okay, I, I have I have two good ones. One is Collins Mullen. Okay. Two is Jonathan Rossum. Okay. I think I think these guys are both complete badasses. They are both relatively young and already super knowledgeable to the point where it just blows my mind, man. In in five years, if they're not better than me, I will be shocked. Uh, I, I think this is a really good answer. And both also do a nice job on the content creation side yeah. as well. Yeah. Rossum and Mullen both write for Star City. Collins has a podcast called MTG Grindcast. Definitely check that out. 
Yeah. I feel like I'm a little too distant from the competitive scene to give a good answer for this right now. Like there's certainly people I could say authoritatively, you know, if I go back a year or two, oh, this person is about about to break through, very underrated. But I feel like that's kind of just all come to fruition at this point. Yeah. I don't really have any targets right now that I think, oh, this person's about to break out. But as I get back into the swing of things, get some more GPs under my belt, I'm sure someone will catch my eye and rise to the top of my list. Yeah, those are two players who are primarily playing SEGs and at some point will need to make a transition over to like actually learn more and give themselves a chance to actually like prove me right and all that. Uh, but w- right. one person who is currently playing Grand Prix and PTs who I th- think is basically the nuts is Noah Walker. Noah's very good. Uh, I've I've played against Noah for a long time now, uh, or at least seen him play. And I, I think we've maybe only played once or, once or twice, but he's from the general, same general area as I am. He's, and he's from have been at enough tournaments. Yeah. And he always plays incredibly well, especially, I mean, I don't think anyone will question him in legacy right now. His legacy play has been fantastic for the better part of two years now. So yeah, that's a really good answer as well. Yeah, I think... I think he should play better decks. Like he probably needs to learn how to mid range or whatever. But uh, at that point, he'll be basically unstoppable. Cruz mm-hmm. asks, "How do you feel about the way that OP punishes cheaters?" I would say that they kind of don't, or at least not. Yeah, way too, way too lenient. Like just incredibly lenient. And I have no, I can't for the life of me understand why, especially when it comes to repeat cheaters yeah. like just just what what is the upside of letting these people back into the game you can you can make all the arguments you want about redemption for someone who's been caught cheating once and growth and all that stuff and, and i'll listen to some extent and in general i like second chances for people but i'm not crazy about third chances and i really hate fourth and fifth chances so there's some people and you know exactly who i'm talking about who should have nothing to do with the game right now and i don't understand why they're allowed back in just say it Alex Borcini. He has no place in magic whatsoever. And yeah, he's he's the big example for sure. And we'll be playing at this pro tour. So yay. Yay. Good job. <laughs> good job, OP. Said no one. All right. Liam Callahan asks, should I purchase the magic card Vengevine? Yes, likely. Mm-hmm. They were reprinted as a foil, and I think that's it. Yeah, they're uh I don't know if they're RPTQ or WMCQ or, or something, but they, they were they got a special reprint as a foil. Yeah, World Magic Cup and Rise of the Eldrazi, and that's it. Yep. So yeah, I don't know. They're they're under 20. If this deck is good, I think it is good, then you know, what the hell? Probably a sixty dollar card until it gets reprinted and you ha- then you have to hope it's reprinted at mythic and not rare. Right. Well it it was mythic, right? Did it Rise was it, it was, but that doesn't mean it will be going forward. If there's a, a modern masters that reprints it or something like that, uh, I mean, if it's sixty, they they generally do that. But that's true. Maybe, generally, maybe generally, like Cryptic, Cryptic Command was a rare. E is a rare, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So who knows? Um, but then that just means that like your bridge from belows will go up or whatever. Like that's something, how it works. something. Yeah. Dan Tracy asks a troll question, so I'll just go on to the next one. Moosey asks, have you played Frontier and what did you think? I never played it. I kind of like the idea of it. Frontier was like, what, Origins and Forward or something ridiculous? Cons, uh, cons, cons and Forward? Cons, because it had fetch lands, and that was my objection to it. I'm, I'm cool with a longer format without fetch lands. You could get me on board. I think like fetch lands, I, I get why they're good from a gameplay perspective. 
I, I really am always enticed by the idea of like no shuffle formats. I think that's kind of a cool idea. Also from like an OP perspective, there's stuff you can do with that where there's no shuffle formats, like scanning cards and knowing what's coming off the top of the deck, uh, which I think is a really interesting avenue to explore. But probably shuffling is too ingrained in the game for this ever to be realistic. I don't know if it actually works or not. I've never gone that deep into it. But that was my biggest beef with Frontier was the addition of the fetch lands. And it's just like, there's there's some question about the reason this format came to be, right? And the rumor is always that there was a huge amount of dealers stuck with a lot of stock from basically cons block and they wanted a way to move it. So they started this other format. I don't know how much stock to put in that. I don't know if it's true. But on the whole, I never participated in Frontier. I do like the idea of a longer format than standard that's still shorter than modern. Maybe a longer rotating format is the way to go. Yeah, but my worry there, my concern is that it stretches people to player base. I understand. Yeah, it's just like it's going to cannibalize standard and modern to some extent. And can OP currently handle that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. Kurt asks, what is your second favorite game? Is this just like, you know, game like game that you played for 100 hours and it was done like Tactics Ogre? Because that is that's like the greatest game I've ever played. Well, make it whatever you want. And so Tactics Ogre is a fine answer for me right now. My second favorite game is Gloomhaven. I've been playing it with my wife. It's dope. Definitely recommend it if you like board games or even if you don't, because my wife is not any form of gamer. Uh, not a board gamer, not a card gamer, not a video gamer. She likes Gloomhaven. She's into it. Uh, and we've been playing for a little while now. So that's my current second favorite. But in general, my first favorite game always stays magic. Everything rotates uh, in a cycle behind that. I got to get your people together with my people because I don't play board games, but my people would play Gloomhaven with y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Gloomhaven's great. Uh, a, a really interesting take on the, the genre, although it's tough to just do like pickup sessions of it. It's generally this thing you do for a full campaign. Liam Callahan asks, what's the best deck in Legacy? Probably Grixis Delver Shrug. Yeah, I don't feel comfortable answering this right now. I don't feel like I know enough Storm? about the format. I think there's like six tier one decks probably. Yeah, someone asked me this last week, I think, like what are what's the new tier one? And I think I came up with like Sneak and Show, Delver, Miracles, DNT. I don't remember what else I had, but the point is there's a broad range of decks that I think are acceptable right now in Legacy. Uh, and I wouldn't have said that before. So that's a good start to this new format. We'll have to see where things settle out in the long run. Pillars would be uh, like Brainstorm, Ancient Tomb, Dark Depths, Aether Vile. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I guess you're supposed to like I get, Brainstorm kind of encompasses like all the blue decks and a lot of the combo decks. So I don't know. Maybe maybe that's too wide, but yeah, I think I think that you can find something legitimately great in either of those four buckets. Maybe Dark Ritual is supposed to be one of them. Yeah, I mean, you just mean like LED in that case, right? There's not really other Dark Ritual decks besides Storm. Reanimator. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I can buy that. But then, yeah, we leave out Dredge, which is super sad. Yeah, I don't, I, Dredge hasn't made too much penetration in the metagame yet. It seems like it should, um, but I think early on, people just had enough targeted graveyard hate to keep it down. Yeah. VTCLA asks, what is your best format all time? We uh, answered this, right? Artifact, well, your your best format. Oh, uh, like so best results. Format. Okay. 
uh, maybe uh, artifact base limited or Cobblade. I yeah, I guess I would have to go like Origins draft because I went undefeated at the PT in Origins draft, so that would be my best format all time. M Lemke asks, "How can you find the best decks without buying all the tier ones? Proxy decks, play with people, like watch streams, watch content." There are so many ways to actually figure this out without physically owning the cards in your hand. Yeah, it's strange to me. There is this like perception that you have to buy everything to participate in learning magic. That's not at all true. I don't know how Wizards feels about us saying this, but there are very good and free ways to practice magic and to learn magic. They are, they are anti-proxy because they don't want counterfeit cards. They, they take a firm stance against counterfeits. I, I, think, I think that's great, but you can also just write with a marker on the back of a card and have nothing that looks anything like, you know, a, a real magic card. Right. And, you know, holistically, it's like, yeah, pe- they want people to enjoy magic. And if, if you know, Mark Rosewater broke into your house and saw that you were playing like proxy magic against your friend, like he wouldn't call the cops on you or whatever, you know. I think that's true. That's my guess, at least. I don't know for sure. Renegade Sora asks, what are your pet cards? For a while I had some. Now I think my pet cards are just all good. Like, I like Thoughtseize and Faithless Looting and just like the, the cheap interaction. I'm still into Nexus of Fate. Jerry hasn't beat it out of me yet. So that's that's still my pet card for the time being. Look, man, if you could ever get a hold of a playset to actually try it in a tournament, I would give you the same treatment that you got for Wizard's Retort. I believe that. And you would lose to Cedric Phillips. <laughs> VTCLA asks, worst to least atrocious, modern merfolk, standard merfolk, legacy merfolk. I think it's actually in that order. Uh, or least modern merfolk is the best. Then then maybe standard merfolk, then maybe legacy merfolk. Uh, I, I think I have legacy better than standard right now. But it's been so long since I've even seen a standard mer- merfolk deck. I don't even know what it would look like at this point. So... I think standard is pretty weak to go wide strats that aren't super vulnerable to Chain Whirler, and Merfolk kind of fits that for me. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Although I I don't see any Merfolks in the five O's from time to time, but... Uh, I know. I know. Matt Nelson asks, what's your ideal pizza and toppings? Uh, Italian sausage tombstone? Maybe, maybe not like ideal. I guess ideal is like just pepperoni pizza luce or something, which I'll have this weekend in Minneapolis. That's funny that you say that because I've only been to Minneapolis once, but I I spent a lot of time looking for good pizza and never found any. So I wish I knew about this place previously, but my ideal pizza is from Antonio's in Brooklyn on Flatbush. I send everyone uh, who goes to New York City over there. I used to live a couple blocks from there. They are amazing. My ideal toppings, just mushrooms. Uh, Back when I used to eat meat, I probably would have gone some kind of like a uh, buffalo chicken style pizza. Okay. I'm I'm down with barbecue chicken. It's a good one too. Any any of the fried chicken pizzas I was really into. And it makes me sad that like generally I like the the fake chickens, like the fake chicken patties that they sell. I yeah. just I just wish someone would put it on a pizza for me. Like one of these really <laughs> really good pizza places. To just use the the fake buffalo chicken on a pizza, I would be totally into it. I thought about maybe asking my local pizza place to do that when I live back in Albany, but I don't have that kind of relationship. Yeah, I could. I could certainly do that. It's hard, though, with those kind of like specialized things. Not everyone wants that. You're already cutting like into a, a – you're fracturing your audience very hard where you're already competing for a very crowded space. So, Jonathan Carter asks, what's the best concert you've ever been to? Wow, this is 
a difficult question for me because I've I, I've probably been to like six or seven hundred concerts if I had to guess. Plus, I worked in like a music venue for a period of time, so I've seen a lot of concerts. Okay. And I I saw Deaf Heaven in Philly a couple years ago. They were pretty amazing. I went to <laughs> this feels kind of silly now. I I went to one Dave Matthews concert. Well, I, I've been to a lot of Dave Matthews concerts, but one in particular <laughs> sticks out in my head that I went to in like 2001 in Giant Stadium. And there was this incredible, like huge thunderstorm that opened up just as they were playing the encore. And I swear the lightning like struck in time with the drum beats oh, damn. being hit. Like, yeah, it was like crazy. And if you weren't there, you wouldn't believe it. But everyone who was there and is listening to this podcast, which is probably no one, but maybe one or two people uh, will know what I'm talking about right away. And it was like a really awe-inspiring, like jaw-dropping moment. So that comes to mind. But it's, it's, this is very difficult. I don't think I can choose one concert. Uh, I have I have two answers for this. One is that I went to a ton of local shows when I was a kid because we just had this like youth place that also just had metal shows for some reason. Yeah, we had one of those too, actually, in my town. Okay. So uh, American Head Charge, do you know this band? No, I don't. So they are rad. Uh, I believe the lead singer passed away a few years ago, like uh, uh, more than a few. But like I got to see them from like straight, like grimy to like become like super polished, like on a label. Mm. And like that sort of transition was awesome. But also just like seeing, seeing like these local bands that like, you know, very clearly wanted it and were super passionate about music. And it's just like American Head Charge, like basically made it, you know, like they made a bunch of albums were relatively famous, whatever, uh, however you want to define that, you know? And it's just like being able to like see them, in like some of their first concerts was just awesome. The other one was, I don't remember the circumstances of this, but I was going with my friend uh, who lived in Kansas city to see uh, my friends, Brett McLeaf. And we we're going to see like Evanescence disturbed kill switch engage. Yeah. Like there, there was like five bands, like ab- about that popularity. Right. Mm-hmm. and it's just like, yeah, whatever. Like, these bands are all fine. I'll go. I like shows. We, like, pull up into the parking lot, and I'm just like, are they playing Spine Shank? And it's just like this band who had two insane albums and then, or maybe maybe three albums, and then they broke up, and they'd just been broken up for, like, the longest time, like a decade or something, and they were just, like, playing in the parking lot. That's dope. So a surprise show that you didn't even expect for a band you really yeah. liked? yeah. And I'm just like, what is this? You know, and then they're just like, yeah, we're getting back together. We're going on tour. We're releasing a new album, blah, blah, blah. That never happened, you know, but like I got to see that show in the parking lot. Nice. We, I don't know if anyone will listen to it, but we should definitely just do a music podcast sometime where we just talk about all the shows we've been to. Cause it sounds like you have a, a wide range of experiences. I know I do too. And I could literally just talk about it forever. Like just hear about concerts and different cool shows we've been to. Yeah, man, I'm I'm down. Just to, we need to like hang out and just like pick a topic and just record it. Yeah, well, we talked about. I, I mean, I think we should commit to this right now. I'm going to put it out there in the ether so people know we're going to do it. Let's drive to Vancouver or Portland. We'll drive from Seattle to these places. I'll drive and we'll record a podcast the whole way. And that's where we could do all this stuff and and go through this, you know, all these weirdo topics that probably most people don't want to listen to us talk about, but a few will really connect with us and really enjoy. We can we can go through all that stuff on the car ride. Dude, I can't wait until like the existentialism episode. 
<laughs> like, That's when we really lose a large portion of the audience. The the lawyer versus just like the most insuff- insufferable person. Like it's going to be great. Yeah, big draw on that one. I'm sure that'll be a, a huge, huge download episode. Crute asks, Jerry, how hard is it to write two quality articles a week? Not at all for me. I love magic. I am firmly entrenched in it. I would be doing all of the research and stuff in my spare time, even if I didn't have stuff to write about. You know, like if if my job was doing something completely different, I would still know all the stuff that I do. The only difference is I get to share it with everyone else. Yeah, I, I think that's a great answer. Uh, you know, the the process of writing this stuff down is just kind of what you do anyway on a week to week basis. And I've only written one article now, but it felt exactly the same way. Like these are just the things that have been going on in my head. Now I just put them on paper and share them with everyone. I I cannot highly recommend this enough. Find something that you love doing and then find a way to monetize it. Feels pretty good. Uh, This is probably the first time in my life I have done that. And uh, I agree. Good advice. Hell yeah. Matt Nelson asks, what's your favorite board game, video game? I, I really dug Stratego back in the day. I know you like Gloom Hollow now. Gloomhaven, yes, Gloom, that's Gloom what I'm currently into. Is, is Gloom Hollow a magic card? I think it is. Uh, there's Gloom Widow. Yeah. Dude, that's that's the Laura and Shadowmore. Right. Or Shadowmore Eventide. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big board game fan for multiple reasons. One of them is you spend all this time trying to learn the game and it ends up messing your first like playthrough because inevitably someone fudges some rule here or there. And then the second part is you spent all this time learning and then you just start playing other games, right? You play like every game once and then it's like, all right, I spent all this time learning games. I don't feel like I spent any time actually playing games. Gloomhaven's like a 200 hour campaign. Just so you know, I'm just putting that out there. Right. But I also don't want to play a game for 200 hours. (laughs) But if you like the game enough, I know you would play it for 200 hours. Like there's certainly RPGs, maybe not 200 hours, but right, but 100 it, hours into. But if I wanted to play it, I also wouldn't want to wait for y'all to put like you and your wife, I'm sure have better things to do than spend 200 hours only hanging out with me. Right. Well, and she gonna, she does. I personally don't. I try and get her to play at every possible junction. But right. Uh, and then yeah, you really want to play and then she can't or doesn't want to. And it's just like, oh, I just. You know, it's like having that TV show that you can't finish because like your SO just wants to to yep. watch it together or whatever. So, yep. I don't know. Video game is Tactics Ogre, not close. I love Tactics games. I wish that they made more of them. I wish that they made them better. Tactics Ogre was on Super Famicom PS2, I believe. And then the the real one, the one that you should play is ported to PSP. And I believe you can download it on Vita. So... I purchased a Vita for Raptor and downloaded the game for him so that he would play it. Well, I, I do have a Vita. I also probably have Tactics Ogre already on my PSP if I could find it. It's, it's in my house somewhere. Oh my God, um, it's so good. But I, I will try it. I generally like that genre. I've struggled with this answer for a long time as to what my favorite video game is. But I think if I'm talking about the game that like captured me the most and the one that I was just most awestruck by... It has to be Shining Force 2 for Genesis, which is very much the same genre, like yeah. tactical combat, You know, certainly a less refined version of it. But man, when that game came out, I loved that game to death. I, I must have beaten it like three or four times. And it's, it's not a short game, although now you see people speed run it and they ruin everything from our childhood. But regardless, yep. um, it, it's, it seemed like it was a very long game at the time. 
And I, I just love the characters. I, I loved everything about it. So that's the one that comes to mind. You know, there's probably some other ones that are in the competition, but that's my answer for the time being. Uh, recent video games I have played and loved include Nier and like any of the Persona games. Basically, like the last three, I think, have just been phenomenal. Oh, Persona 4 is on my list too. Persona 4 is a great choice. Persona 5 didn't resonate with me in the same way. I think it's very good, but I, I still haven't beaten it actually. But Persona 4 was amazing. Yeah, 3 and 4 resonated with me a lot. And then 5 just blew me away with the style. Yeah, beautiful game. Beautiful. I, yeah. And I can't tell you why I haven't beaten it because I, I was really enjoying it. Honestly, I should pick it back up. That might be my thing. That might be what I'm going back to. Like P5 blows my mind because it's just like so far away from everything else and they do such a good job with it it's just like it makes everyone else look bad and i just i love the aesthetic of those games too like yeah the the music i'll just listen to the persona 4 soundtrack like casually i i'm very happy listening to all of it i played the persona dancing game because i love like the style and the music so much okay so total hard buyer of persona and persona 4 is definitely in the mix with my favorite game of all time I have written several articles to the Nier soundtrack, so I'm right there with you on music. Nier is on my wish list as soon as it uh, goes into like a, a good Steam sale. I'll be picking it up and trying that out. Oh my god, it is rad. I didn't think I was going to like it at all. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. You, you definitely sang its praises to me uh, probably going back a couple months now. I haven't picked it up yet, but I will at some point. My Steam library is preposterous. I have like 400 games in my Steam library, and I've probably played like <laughs> 30 of them. So it'll just get added to my backlog at that point, but it'll be there for someday. I got to fight you in Blaze Blue sometime, too. I'm, I'm ready. I've been practicing. Right. I'm still terrible, but uh, yeah, we can battle. I own the game. I have yet to play it. There are extenuating circumstances. We'll talk about it at some point. Okay. Uh, Shane B asks, how do you balance playing for fun and for competition? Well, the competition is the fun and winning is part of the fun and learning is part of the fun. So basically I try and find the best deck and then use that to beat everyone. Yeah, pretty similar approach. Like we talked about, I'll do some stupid stuff in the name of fun. And then when I lose, I realize it's not all that fun. So Chris G asks, would you accept positions at Wizards, Brian? (laughs) That could be directed at you too. Glaring angrily. So you're you're in the unenviable position of being in a long line of people who have abandoned me. I, I, I guess <laughs> so. that's true. Or the enviable position, depending on how you look at it. But Well, not enviable for me. That's true. It, it totally depends on the circumstances. I can't answer that. What, what's the job? What's the position I'm being offered? Am I in charge of magic? Yeah, I'd have to take that opportunity. That sounds great. But too broad of a question to answer. What, what about just like position, like full-time position in play design? I would need to know more about exactly what play design does. Oh, shut up. No, I I really would. I absolutely would. I just don't know about how their workflow works. And I think intentionally so. A lot of what they do is like kind of shrouded in mystery. I would have to hear about exactly how they work, how they report. You know, I would talk to people who are in the position and see if they enjoyed their time. Is it, I, I don't know that it's a one for one analog that if you love, playing magic, you necessarily love working in play design. I would have to have evidence of that. I suspect it is absolutely, but I don't know. I, I guess my my take to accepting jobs is a little bit more cautious and a little bit more corporate than typical like approach to game design jobs. You know what I mean? I didn't know you were such a pessimist. It's, it's not that... 
<laughs> you're taking it the wrong way. It's it's not that I'm a pessimist. It's just that I when I look for jobs, because a job defines so much of your life. It's it's like your world essentially. It's it's everything. So I, you know, you can always quit, right? Like you have done that before. I have quit jobs before, but I feel bad about it. Like I'm the type of person that when I leave a job, I honestly feel guilty. Like I'm letting. Oh no, down. I, I I do too, but. You know, you got to do what you got to do. If we're putting a percentage chance on it, there's a very high likelihood that it's a great job, an amazing job and something I would love to do. But okay. I would just do the required due diligence before I could answer that. A hundred percent. Yes, I would accept. So the answer to would you leave me is yes. <laughs> got it. Got it. Nailed it. My answer is a current no. I am pretty sure uh, I have an understanding of all the things that Brian was questioning, uh, if not like a hundred percent understanding, like a decent understanding of like how things work and everything. And it's just like, I'm not saying that those things are bad, but given that I would say no, because it just means that like, I don't get to travel. I don't get to see like all these people. I don't get to play magic professionally. I don't get to make content, you know, just like there are a lot of restrictions that would inhibit the things about my life that I love. So it's a really tough sell. Right. And I, I think all that applies to me as well, because I do love what I'm doing right now. Like I, I really enjoy working on this podcast. I enjoy creating content. And so if I were to give that up, I would have to know everything about it and be sure that I was doing the right thing. And it's it's a high barrier because I really, maybe for the first time ever, enjoy the vast majority of what I'm working on right now. And I, I couldn't say that about my lawyering jobs. And you know sometimes bartending was fun, but it wore on you sometimes. And I loved poker at first and then grew to absolutely despise it. So, you know, it's a rare circumstance and I don't want to take it for granted. Good answer. Good answer. Hunter Christ says, and this is says, not asks, because this is not a question. Staying calm when you're doing well at a tournament, at a large event. Good idea. I agree. Hunter Christ, you should certainly do that. (laughs) You should should try and do that. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Assuming this is in the form of a question. People equate things like I'm 4-0 or I'm 6-0 or I'm 9-1 or whatever to a thing. And that is not a thing. Like you do not get to pause in that moment in time and be 9-1 forever. That is going to change. The tournament will end at some point. If you want to be proud of a result, then be proud at the end of it. And right now you're worrying about blowing it so that you're not going to be satisfied with your results, which is self-fulfilling. Excellent point. I have felt this doing well panic exactly once in my life. Uh, I remember I was, I, I can remember when I felt it and it wasn't that I was scared of things going wrong. It's that I couldn't take the waiting to know what was going to happen next. I was, I was, okay. I was 11, I was either 10 and one or 11 and two at pro tour origins. And in first place, And I remember I was talking with Reed Duke at the pairings board, just like waiting for the next round to come up. And I was just like, I wanted to sit down and play so badly just to know where the story was going to end. You know, could I cement a top eight anytime soon? And I remember saying to him, I don't know how you routinely do this. where <laughs> You're like in contention for this top eight, this thing that means so much for you and, and just can deal with having to wait for the next round to come. Because that's what I felt in that moment. Like, just please let me get to this next result. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I, I wanted to take control of the situation and get to the end. Uh, which is a weird experience for me. That's not really something I have ever felt before in my life, this desire to kind of rush forward and move time along. But I felt it really intensely in that moment. What did he say? What did Reed Duke say? I don't remember what Reed said. I, something 
I think something it was along probably the, something profound and great that changed your life. Yeah, he probably totally like calmed my nerves. I, I do remember it was, it was like he just took a second to like ground me and to just kind of you know congratulate me on doing well so far, stay focused, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't I don't remember specifically what he was saying at that time. One thing that I will bring up is that if you are doing well, if you are eleven and one at a pro tour, like you deserve to be there and. That means that there will be a chance for you to be there again, right? So I don't know. It's it is weird that people want these things so badly that they just end up like self destructing, right? It's just like that is so silly and should just not happen, right? Right, and and I do see it happen all the time. Oh yeah, I I, oh, I yeah. don't think that was what I was going through. I think it was just more of like a a weird like, come on, let's go. I can't tell you how many people I've seen just like report on their 6-0 and then just crumble to dust when they don't really feel like they belong there. Anytime someone celebrates, they're done. That's true. Absolutely done. That's true. You like high five someone at 6-0, you like 9-0 at GP, change your profile picture, you're done. <laughs> the change of your profile picture is is perfect. Yeah. If you, if you swap out your your 9-0 picture into your like Facebook picture, you're, you're done for. You have no chance. You you are already celebrating. The tournament is not over yet. And that means that you're just not going to be trying as hard. You think that you already achieved the thing that you came for. It ain't over. Yep. I agree. So you still got stuff left to fight for. I wouldn't be like worried about being, you know, nine and one at a large event or whatever. I would just be like, all right, I need to beat this next opponent straight up. Right. Uh, Shane B asks, what's your favorite way to kill time between rounds? Apparently, Brian's is uh, anxiously awaiting the pairings so that he could play Magic That's again. kind of accurate, yeah. Uh, mine is just like socializing, although I do smoke, and I'm, yeah, I'm fully aware that that is a bad habit, and I should quit, and I do not recommend that anyone does that themselves, but it is a reasonable way to remain social with people. Wait, let's, let's bring this up, actually, because this is something I don't think we've ever discussed before. I'm always fascinated, and I've I've been there myself uh, until probably like nine years now since I quit smoking. But I'm always fascinated when someone who's really smart smokes because it's kind of like one of the worst decisions you can make, right? Like so many people who are smart are so just absurdly self destructive. Though you're like, oh, you're smart. You should I, know that. I know. I, I right. I know. Okay. So for me, it is a coping mechanism to some degree. It does calm me. I think that. Most people, when they wake up, like they're at even, right? Like they're ready to start their day. When I wake up or I haven't had a cigarette for two hours, I am no longer even and smoking gets me back to even, if that makes any sense. Right. But that's a, that's a function of addiction though, not necessarily yes. its ability to do yes. anything. But going from bottom to even feels really good. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's, that's where the addiction comes from for sure. Yeah, so you have these moments of misery or like, you know, not not misery, like you learn to cope with it, right? But with like these little interspersed moments of just like, oh man, like you just feel so refreshed and so great and so awesome. Right. One of the things that's interesting and I think people who don't smoke don't really understand about like efforts to stop smoking and, and how dramatic the effect is, is that when you do smoke, it tent pulls your day and like each task you do ends with a cigarette and it just kind of does this weird effect where there's this order and this rhythm to your life that when I stopped smoking, I was like, what the fuck do I, I just swore for the first time on this podcast ever, but that's how strongly I felt. What the heck do I do right now? Because it's so different to not have that thing in your life 
Yeah. Every time I complete a task, I smoke. Yeah. I know that's that's how I think a lot of people do things and 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 how I certainly did things and uh, that makes it really tough to quit. Do you want to quit? Do you have a desire to quit? Uh, right now, no. I have tried quitting before when I did not want to quit and realized that it did not work. But yeah, I know I know that I'm getting there. Right, like it is it is a crutch for me in a lot of ways, and one of them is like being out in groups with people and wanting a way to get away from that just having a reason. Right. And it it gives me a reason to just leave whenever I want and just go do my own thing and like collect my thoughts. And it's like an enabler for me to be more introverted. I could see that. But at this point I am like kind of terrified if I didn't have that escape, you know, it's like, what am I going to do? Just like go sit in the bathroom or whatever. Like (laughs) phones help phones are like the new cigarettes. Basically everyone uses their phone in that way. I think. Oh, I, I do too. But it's just like, you know, at a certain point, like enough is enough. Right. And it's like, I can't, if I'm sitting there just like on my phone, that's, that's considered rude. Right. But like, if I go to the restroom or if I go smoke, that's not, that's not rude. That's true. And it's like, you know, part of being introverted and feeling kind of awkward in these social situations is overanalyzing like you and your impact on the group and what people think of you and all this nonsense that is completely irrelevant because realistically no one is thinking about you. Right. All things that you've created in your own head. But it gives me a way to be comfortable through all of this, even though I am supposedly smart and should know better. No, I look, I understand. I'm not trying to give you a hard time about it. I just think it's an it's an interesting discussion to have. Uh, I'm always curious where people are at with their relationship with smoking, because I, I think it does change over time. I Like you said, I tried to quit for someone else the first time I tried Same. to quit and it didn't work. And then when I did actually quit, it was for myself and it did work. And I'm, I'm happy that that's something I was able to achieve and overcome, but I don't, it's, it's tough, man. I don't begrudge anyone for, you know, you, first of all, wanting the crutch, second of all, having difficulty getting away from it. So yeah, just an interesting little, little talking point to have. Yeah. And I, I think that everyone has their own vices, right? Like right, I, right. I don't drink very much at all these days. I don't know. Like this is, this is like more kind of off topic, but it's like, I didn't drink until I was 23. I didn't smoke a cigarette until I was 26. Like, you know, there's a lot of other stuff in, in that realm that I did not do until very, very late because I knew that I was just in a place where if I had these sorts of vices, like I would abuse them because yeah, you'd lean really hard. Yeah. Because it's like, I would rather be drunk than, you know, be doing normal real life stuff, or I would rather smoke than, participate in these social situations or whatever it is. And uh, right now I'm at a place where I'm smoking cigarettes and that's okay. Like I am, I am not abusing alcohol or doing anything of that nature. And like, I'm proud of that. And I think you should be. And I I think that's totally defensible. And uh, you know, no one's, no one's perfect. Like I said, my effort is not to give you a hard time. It's, it's just to consider some of the psychological aspects behind it. And, you know, I, I think it, it humanizes you a little bit. I think people want to know more about Jerry and, and what drives him. And yeah, that's part of what drives absolutely. you. So. I mean, it, it's, it's not a thing I bring up and it's like anyone who has ever been at a tournament, like has seen me smoke or whatever, but it's like, it's not something I want to advertise because I don't think that anyone else should be doing it. Right. All right. And in the meantime, it's just like, I don't know. Like I, I grew up thinking like, Oh, like I probably won't make it past 40 or whatever, you know? So I don't know. I, I, I don't know like what my plan is to be alive at 60, 
Yeah. That, that kind of terrifies me too. So when someone is just like, Oh, you know, like, aren't you worried about like getting cancer and dying or whatever? It's just like, well, I, I can't imagine like being alive at 60. So I guess that doesn't frighten me. Cause I just assumed I would be dead already. Yeah. That was my take for a long time too. And then things changed kind of dramatically. And I was like, well, I better clean up my act here or I will be correct. And, uh, you know, now that I want to have a longer life, <laughs> I need to make sure I'm taking steps to to get there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have wanting to have a longer life mixed with like still feeling like I think like I'm 25 or I'm like, I'm invincible. I'm going to live forever or whatever mixed with mm-hmm. being like, actually, you know, I'm 34, I think. That's how you know you're old when it takes you a minute to figure out. How I, old I just are. don't celebrate my birthday. I just, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm 34. Right. And it's like uh, if I try and like run or whatever, I get winded, you know, like Mm -hmm. I I am clearly getting older. Things are getting harder. I am being punished for smoking at this point. Like my youthful energy does not negate the fact that I'm smoking cigarettes anymore. Yeah. Everything catches up to you at some point. And I do like my life now. I do want to keep living and I will quit at some point. And that's not right now. Cool. Boki asks. An MTG game movie is being made. Who plays you? I guess my answer is Macaulay Culkin because people have said that I look like him or he looks like me. That's kind of a good answer. <laughs> I, I like that one. Uh, my answer is some extra because I don't really show up in too many uh, MTG games. So I'm not going to be a really important role. Just grab someone off the street. All right. But but who's your uh, like famous doppelganger? So I've I've heard two, and I think one applies when I was younger and more handsome. And now that I'm old and shitty, the, this one applies a little bit more. But I, I used to be told Enrique Iglesias when I was younger. Damn. And now that I'm old and crappy, uh, I hear Robert Downey Jr. sometimes, which like I can I can live with. I guess that's fine. Dude, RDJ's the nut. Yeah, I, I mean. Yeah, he's he's good. I don't know. I miss the days when I was like, when I actually was good looking and able to get the good comparisons. And now like, uh, at least you think I kind of look like someone famous. I'll take what I can get. Oh, you're absurd. Well, so, uh, so I am. VTCLA asks, when Wizards hires one of you, who is the next co-host? So when I knew that Majors was leaving, I made an, an extensive list. It, <laughs> it was It was like 40 people who I thought could potentially be good. And so I would have to recheck that list and I don't know off the the top of my head, but realistically, like if I tried to, I wouldn't try and recruit Collins because he already has his other show, but like I would ask Rossum for sure. I would have to, I mean, I just have to pick someone who like, I really enjoy talking about magic with. And just because I really like talking to someone doesn't mean I necessarily like talking about magic with them. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like a, a high bar to cross, but two people come to mind one, a bunch of people would know. One, almost nobody would know. My friend Phil Bertarelli, who I think Dude, I introduced you to him Phil, once. Phil is awesome. Yeah, Phil is, in fact, awesome. He he wrote one article on Star City, so you can check that out if you're curious who he is. But I, I just don't think he really plays much anymore. But when he's engaged and like caring about magic, he's, one, really good at it. Two, just like a pleasure to talk to about the game. Um, so he would be very high on my list. And the second would be Andy Boswell, who I always love talking okay. about magic with. And I've worked with before, preparing for a pro tour. And 
he's just a fun guy to talk to. And I think that's like, I think that's the heart of our show is that we enjoy talking to each other about magic. And if you don't have that, it doesn't really matter, you know, what level of knowledge is there. That's got to be the root. And those two people really stand out as people I've enjoyed talking about magic with. Wonderful answer. VTCLA asks, who do you want to beat most badly? Uh, Everyone. Yeah, no one really stands out as someone who like I'm I'm desperate to either avenge a loss to or I, I don't know. I guess like I could put Alex on the list as someone I want to beat just because I don't think he should ever win a match of magic. But yeah, it's really all that comes to mind. You know, that's legit. But my record against Alex is like 30 and one or something. So so you're good at spotting the cheats is what you're saying. Uh, I, I think he's he's scared okay. to cheat against me. It's also possible that like he was cheating against me and lost anyway. Very possible. Yo Man 5 asks, you get one Andrew Brown and Michael Majors episode. What's the focus? Man, I don't know. Like at this point, it's like, uh, I guess I would like to talk about like the inner workings of play design and how to make things a little bit better and like things to be focusing on and stuff. But I don't think that that is really something that they could do. Yeah, I think it depends. Like, is this a hypothetical universe where they just get the gag off and they can talk about everything? Because they're probably pretty limited in what they could say at this point. On the whole, I guess I'd want to know, assuming they're limited, I'd want to know what they think they can bring out from Wizards to help people playing Magic. Like, what have they learned as play designers uh, and designers to to improve our games? That's really the question I would focus on. That's legit. I like that answer. Zuzan asks, what are your favorite movie directors? And honestly, I, I don't have a good reply to this. I mean, I definitely have like movies I feel strongly about, but I don't know that there's any directors that I'm like over the moon about. I just love everything they do. Like there's a point where I guess like classic Steven Spielberg really appeals to me. Probably growing up at the time I did, you know, his movies were a very large part of my childhood. But I don't know that I would say he's one of my favorite directors. I know I really don't like Wes Anderson. People get very upset when I say that. I, I don't like Wes Anderson movies at all. They do absolutely nothing for me. Is he the one that makes like the the Durfee movies with uh, like Bill Murray and stuff? Yes. Yeah, I, I can't stand those movies. I, I just don't get it. Like, and I was a film minor, so I have some like film background. I, I've seen a lot of movies. I, I, I feel like I get cinema to some extent. And I, I, Wes Anderson is a complete and total miss for me. So I lived or I, I live with uh, a few people that work at Wizards. And before I lived here, Glenn Jones lived in the house and I would spend a lot of time here, which is part of the reason why I moved into the house is like I actively like being here. And Glenn Jones is just like one of the, the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. Right. Like he is just well versed on a lot of subjects and one of the things that he really enjoys is just media in like all forms basically. So like any sort of like book, TV show, movie, whatever. And he would be able to speak very thoughtfully to things like this. Whereas I, I really can't like, I'm, I'm basically a person who will sit there and be like, you know, I liked it or I didn't like it or whatever. And it's like, I'm not super artsy. Like I, I don't really get that aspect of like film and TV. I, yeah, I, I don't know where I fall on that spectrum. I, probably somewhere below Glenn and somewhere above you, but I, I just have have no takeaway from Wes Anderson. Maybe our our Discord can tell me what Wes Anderson is about and give me at least a new lens to look at these movies through. Because thus far, they are just complete and total misses for me. Yeah, a, a lot of it is just like 
storyline and character development for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly the director has like a lot of say and play to that. But as far as like how things are shot and blah, blah, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> Anthony asks, how much longer do you see yourselves playing magic for? I mean, why, why would you quit? Yeah, I, I just can't think of an event that would cause me to stop at this point. And magic would have to go away or a new game that I just can't do anything but play and completely absorbs all of my time. But it seems unlikely. It would have to just not be interesting to me. And I don't see that. Like, even if something in life took me away, like, I don't think I could ever, like, not look at coverage and not look at, like, what decks are doing well and look what's coming out in new sets and stuff. Like, I... I feel like that sort of thing will always intrigue me. Same. Kevcon asks, what is your most nostalgic card and why? Kind of covered this with like old extended and, uh, you know, 2007, 2008 legacy. We talked about like our favorite decks and all that stuff. Uh, I, I have a lot of favorite cards like, you know, Nether Spirit, Gaia's Blessing, just like things that are, you know, pretty horrendous by today's standards. Antiquities Millstone is the one that comes to mind for me. Like it was one of the first cards I was really excited to get. I probably the first card ever that I bought the more expensive version of at the time because you could either get like fourth edition millstones or antiquities millstones. And it was probably like a dollar more for antiquities millstones. And I was very poor. So making the non-financially sound decision was not something I really ever did. But I loved millstone and particularly antiquities millstone. Nice. The CRS asks, before a standard GP, how many MTGO leagues is sufficient? That is a pretty horrendous question. I'm just going to, I'm going to be blunt about it. It's, it's bad. At no point are you like, I have played enough magic to know that, that my deck is great. It's like, no, you can figure that out in one match or you can figure out in 30. And you know, the, the opposite is true. Like maybe after one match, you have no idea if your deck is good. And maybe after 30, like you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. There, there's not a set number. There just isn't. You just have to know. Yeah, I, I do not think there's any point of sufficiency either. I've certainly had experiences where I've never played a game at my deck until I sat down and did exceedingly well. Um, I've had experiences where I feel like I know a deck inside and out. I believe it to be the best deck. I've played dozens and dozens of leagues and do terribly. I mean, what does sufficient mean? It seems like you're just, you're chasing something here and there's, there's no good answer to it. I think it is seeking like an easy out to something. I've done this many and now I'm okay. Yeah. But it's like, I, I can't like the, the answer is not play three leagues and you're good because that's, that's just silly. And if you stop and think about it, you'll realize like, the, the amount of games you play isn't necessarily indicative of how much knowledge you gain and also like how much knowledge is enough. Is there a cap on that? And the answer is basically no. Yeah. The cleanest answer I can give is play till you're comfortable and you can be comfortable with no games. You can never be comfortable. But I, I guess that's like if, if you're, that's what you're using your leagues for, you're trying to reach a point of comfort and only you can identify when you feel that level of comfort with your deck. I have played 10 leagues. Now I'm going to win the Grand Prix. That'd be nice. Although I probably still wouldn't get the 10 leagues in, but. <laughs> yeah, me either. But whatever. Like, that's, that's just not how it works. Yo Man 5 asks, favorite comfort food and or favorite street food? I don't know. Comfort food, maybe just like pizza for me. I, I really need to cut back on carbs. It just destroys me. 
Yeah, my answer to both of these is pizza. I, I just love pizza. I at points in my life I have been on all pizza diets before. I don't recommend that. Nah. I currently don't eat much pizza, but it just seems like it'll always be my favorite food. I don't think I've ever had a street hot dog that I didn't like though. Well, I think hot dogs in general, like if you're on board with hot dogs, you can't really mess them up. Like they're always just gonna be this mismatch of horrible meat. It's a hot dog. Like, how does it go wrong? It has to be rancid or stale, and then you're not going to eat it. You're going to identify it very quickly. So Benson Lie asks, what's the fastest way to improve in magic? Stop looking for shortcuts. Everyone. Plus you're, plus you're doing it right now. Listening to the game podcast. Everyone knows that's the fastest way to improve. Uh I don't know that's the fastest way, but I do think it is very supplemental to you playing yourself. And people learn in different ways, right? You know, people some people are visual and whatnot and other people aren't like i know that me and ifro are two people who generally get more out of watching others play magic than just playing the games ourselves mm-hmm. it also depends on what level you're coming from you know yeah very true i, I don't like your off-brand answer you're just supposed to say we're the best at everything but uh you're, you're probably right different strokes for different folks crs asks who is the best magic player on the world today what makes them so good? I mean, people are going to say Owen. Uh, they're going to say that, like, he doesn't make mistakes. His gameplay is all, like, very tight and technical. And, I mean, for the most part, like, that is basically true, right? But, like, part of that is also kind of a weak point, really, where it's just, like, you expect your opponents to do ABC things and you don't know exactly how to react to ABC things. And then I don't know how he reacts when presented with like an unfamiliar situation. Yeah. I mean, just on instinct, that would, Owen would be my answer as well. I would say that he is slavishly devoted to being the best magic player in the world. I think he wants that more than anything else on the planet. I think it's what matters to him more than anything else on the planet. Um, And that kind of gives him that capability, but this is a very ethereal thing and there's probably no correct answer to this and the best results don't dictate who the best player in the world is. And there's a lot to this, but my, my quick answer is Owen. Yeah. You, you can be great at playing the games, but maybe you play bad decks all the time. Right. And mm. then it's just like your results are clearly going to suffer as a result of that. And I, I think, you know, everyone has had that happen to them where you just play like the wrong deck at some point that, is an affliction that affects everyone, Owen included. For sure. Matt, with an extra T, asks, should more be done to make going first matter less? How would you make going first matter less? I don't Uh, think it matters all that much. I mean, I would have to look at the data, but I feel like Magic's in a pretty balanced place where the, the, the right mix of things is now in place where being on the draw is not a huge disadvantage. I would love to see numbers on this. It's probably a little bit more pronounced in modern than it is in like standard. But on the whole, it's not like I lose die rolls and I'm like, oh, I have no chance in this game. On the whole, obviously it happens in certain matchups from time to time. But uh, I, I think this balance is in a fine place. I do too. I would also just be curious to see the numbers just because I want to know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, if anything, it's like it is under a 5% difference. Yeah, and- that would be my guess. <clears throat> In theory, it all evens out and you have a sideboard and like there are so many things in play where it's just like I I feel like this is not a thing that you should necessarily be focusing your mental energy on. Garrett asks, uh, what's one legacy card that you would like to see in modern? The only one that comes to mind is Force of Will. 
Um, I think it fundamentally changes everything. And I, I, I'm not saying it's for the better. I just think things could look differently. Otherwise, it feels like you're just like adding a card to a deck if you choose any other card. I mean, maybe you could say like Wasteland, but that's got its own set of problems. I'm going to go with Force of Will. I don't have strong conviction behind this answer, but it, it just seems interesting to explore a Force of Will format. I think Force of Will is scary because of the combo decks. Yeah, I mean, you create this arms race, right, where now the combo decks have it, so the fair decks have to have it, and I, I don't know where things go from there. But, what I mean, what's the better answer? Like, what really spices up the format? What changes things? What makes things interesting? I, I mean, I don't know that Modern is clamoring for any legacy cards to necessarily show up. Yeah, I mean, I would probably just look at, like, what the weakest color in Modern is. Right now, I think it's maybe white, just in general. Maybe. I mean, white's kind of the core of humans. If if you think of like Thalia as one of the defining cards and I don't know, obviously those are like very non-modern-ish things that the white cards are doing. They're just beating down, but. I think white, white could use something of an identity that is not small creatures or like a a secondary color or tertiary color in a control deck. Mm -hmm. Like. What what is like the good white mid range draw like lingering souls and that's literally it. I don't know. I I guess like I'm fine with white. White's role in modern feels on brand to me. Like it's doing the right things for the color white. White mid range isn't something that I necessarily am concerned about being underrepresented. Maybe that's just my own personal bias, and it should be represented across the entire spectrum of you know combo control mid range. But I don't think so. I, I think white is doing a good job sticking to its color identity in modern. I don't know. I, I just don't think this is really that that useful of an ad. Like, there's nothing I'm excited to throw into the card pool here. Well, if white is basically Path to Exile, Lingering Souls, sideboard cards, and aggressive creatures. And that is super shallow compared to what all the other colors have access to. Like, white, white could use more tools, I think. Can you think of one that you would bring in from Legacy? Uh, like specifically legacy versus like, you know, top down designing something, not really like mother of runes just like goes in humans, right? It's like, oh, in theory, it helps like death and taxes and like Eldrazi yeah, and stuff like that. Like, yeah, it's, it's just kind of silly. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Uh, nothing is springing to mind for me right now. Like white, white needs a two drop Tarmogoyf. Uh, I don't think that. You know, unbanning Stoneforge Mystic is the right thing because then you have the same issue where people are just like splashing for the the very strong white cards, right? Mm-hmm. So white needs just something of an identity. It needs like a, a reason to actually be in that color rather than just things that you you add on on to like an already existing deck. All right. But I am better at uh, identifying problems than I am coming up with solutions given like no multiple choice or anything like i'm i'm a reasonable developer and a bad designer Uh, i think i actually fall under the same category like i i flirted with game design jobs for a while and as i was doing basically the application process i kind of had this realization where i i think i belong on the later end of this like i'm not i'm not good with coming up uh with with fresh fresh takes. I'm really good at analyzing the format as a whole, understanding how pieces fit together, uh, understanding evolutions, but just making things up out of thin air was not my forte. Yeah. 
So Evan Appleton asks, what aspect of your personal growth makes you most proud? Uh, I, I think this this is like the empathy part for me. The quick thing that popped to mind was selflessness, which I, I guess is kind of like another word for empathy uh, or at least an application of empathy. So yeah, I, I do think this calls back to the earlier discussion and that's where I would lie as well. Uh, Kobe asks, what tournament do you regret missing the most or regret attending the most? Uh, there are a lot of tournaments that I have attended where I can chalk up a near miss to things that I have done that have been like actionable data points, which has been awesome. Like those those things stick with me. And it's like, oh yeah, remember that lesson. Uh, I don't really think that that's the question that is getting asked here. It's like regret attending some tournament. It's like, I, I don't know. Like, you know, I want to play in all the pro tours. I want to play in all the world championships. I would like to play in the mocks again, but I haven't played like a mocks qualifier in ages. Because I'm just like gone every weekend. So I don't know. Yeah, I guess I would say if I had to choose that tournament, I regret missing maybe like the first GP Las Vegas. Uh, I know I had friends from like all over the country there and a lot of people seemed like they had a good time, but I'm pretty okay with not being there on the whole. Like you can't, you can't be at every tournament. As far as regret attending, nothing sticks out as like a just absolutely disastrous experience in my mind i've had pretty good experiences at magic tournaments i've attended so i I don't really regret attending any any tournaments that i can think of yeah me either like things bad things are gonna happen eventually you know like gp charlotte had some uh like horror meltdown or whatever gp las vegas this year the modern one had like the same thing and it's just like those sorts of things i expect to happen every once in a while that doesn't mean that I regretted attending them or whatever. It's like actually both tournaments I finished 12 and three also and got like much needed pro points. So how, how can a magic tournament be that bad where I'm like, man, I wish I didn't go to this. Yeah. There were probably like some, if you, if I go back to some PTQ drives that I did back when I was like bartending and I would work till four in the morning and then drive right to a PTQ and try and play that in the morning. I probably regret a lot of those in retrospect, actually, because I was basically sleepwalking at the table so I probably should have just cut all those out. That's that's going to be my answer for what I regret attending. M. Lemke wants to ask you a personal question about how you balance magic and life when you also work a full-time job. Well, interesting you asked that question, M. Lemke, because I do not work a full-time job. When I did, uh, magic took a backseat pretty hard, and I was unhappy about it a lot of the time. And I'm really happy that I have more time to think about magic and play magic and talk about magic. Life is give and take, and I did a bunch of cool things over the last six years or so while I was training and working as a lawyer. So I, I guess you just do what you can, and you're always going to want more on, on on one end or the other. But on the whole, magic will be there for you when you do have the time for it. That's what I love about magic is that it's it's ebbed and flowed in my life. Sometimes it's been at highs, sometimes it's been at lows, but I can always hop back in. And it's always there for me when I do have the time. There's a hierarchy, right? As far as being able to stack rank things in your life that matter slash are important. Right. And it's like, you're married, you have a good job. Like these things do matter. Being financially stable matters. And what you do in your free time generally takes a back seat. I think that at some point it's just like, man, I am, I'm like super stressed out from all of this stuff. And like, you know, maybe you need more time to do this thing that you enjoy or love or whatever. And I think that you may or may not be able to make time for that. Right. But it's like, you know, first and foremost, like 
provide for yourself, provide for your loved ones, your family, whatever, and do as much as you can in that regard. And then, you know, magic is the other thing, but it can be very difficult to find time to basically do like all three things full time, right? Like there are only so many hours in the day. Right. I mean, it, it was a challenge at many points through the last few years, for sure. And I, I'm not going to say I wasn't frustrated, but you got to accept the reality of the situation you're facing. And for most of us, magic can't come first. It doesn't make sense from a, a financial perspective, from a just a general like building your life perspective. It's very difficult for some people to put magic first. Other people are able to do that. And that's great. And you just have to be cognizant of your circumstances and realize we all approach this this game of life in a different way. And, you know, don't look at what someone else is doing. Look at what you're able to do and, and find happiness with that. I mean, realistically, if you're listening to this podcast and you are able to play magic and magic is very much a luxury hobby, however much you want to admit that or not, like it just is right. Like if, oh, you, are, sure. if you are able to play magic, like you're, you got it you got it pretty okay, you know, and you got to be grateful for the things you do have, not be like on this insane grass is always greener kick. It's just like, if you don't have time to play as much magic as you would like, because you have a family that presumably you love and a job that presumably takes care of you and helps you provide for your family and everything. It's just like, well, if, if you're sad that magic is, is being a third to that, that's okay. Like you already have like all this stuff going on that you do love and you do enjoy. And instead of spending time, like regretting about what you can't have, maybe you could spend more time appreciating the things that you do have. I think that's excellent advice. Philberman asks, how do you analyze a weakness in your own game? It should be apparent. I think it's just like, if you are playing games and thinking about what happened during those games and how things went wrong and things you could have done differently. At some point you will just be like, okay, this has happened several times. I need to work on this. It is very clear that this is the thing that is costing me equity. I need to fix it. Yeah. I mean, my weaknesses, I, they're just apparent. I, I play out my games and I think, wow, that was stupid. That's a weakness of mine. I need to fix that. I don't think there's any magical approach or or anything I do in particular that lets me get to those weaknesses. It's just playing a bunch of games and seeing the same things play out multiple times and then taking steps to address them. M. Lemke asks, what are some tips to building limited decks? I, I could add a lot to this discussion, um, but I think I'm going to try and keep it brief. Possibly to my detriment, uh, for my draft decks, I try and have a plan. Like, I want my deck to be doing, like, not necessarily be pigeonholed into doing the same thing, but I want it to be like, all right, this is a deck that is going to attack in the air with flyers and, like, try and stabilize the ground and, like, win races and stuff like that. And for Sealed, it's like, a, a lot of the formats lately have been, like, play your best cards kind of at whatever cost. So... If you have mana fixing, that might involve like playing three or even four colors and sideboarding, I think is super huge, especially in sealed where you'll often see me cut like a bunch of two drops and like suddenly choose to draw first and have more like big cards in my deck, like more powerful cards against decks that have like a lot of removal. It's like I very much try and tailor my deck against theirs. And there's just like so much that goes on in any 
like limited Grand Prix or limited tournament period where it's just like I, I could write so much content about this. The, the problem is that like people don't really consume limited content for whatever reason. Like Constructed is just way more popular. Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of wish we were able to do more limited stuff. But the fact of the matter is most people do not care. Uh, limited is not what it used to be because honestly, I think I'm a much better limited player than a constructed player. If I kind of categorized my loves of magic, limited used to be number one. I think as like I've done more content and just the the way I approach the game, constructed has kind of surpassed it, but limited will always hold a special place in my heart as kind of the way I returned to magic at first. But as as far as tips to building limited decks, I think you did a good job explaining it, Jerry. I think it's very important that every single limited deck you build has a plan. And I hate like pick order guides. I, I think they are so detrimental to development as a player, as a limited player. Um, when people go and like look at Frank Karsten's uh, list of the definitive pick order for the format. I, I mean, I think they're interesting as thought experiments, but following a pick order is the surest way to blow a draft. Every single decision you make has to be in furtherance of executing a coherent deck with a coherent plan. And your your limited deck should look like kind of bootleg versions of clear archetypes. Like this is the counters deck in the format. This is the dinosaurs deck in the format. There has to be some meat there, something holding them together. The mush of good cards doesn't work in draft in most cases. And sealed in recent years, it does seem to be the way to go. I'll be honest, my sealed game has not adapted well to recent limited formats. And I've I found it to be a point of frustration. I, I don't think I get modern uh, sealed deck construction as fully as I need to. And it's been really frustrating because I keep crushing these draft formats and have a lot of disappointment at GPs where I'm unable to convert through the sealed deck portion of the event. And that's definitely something I want to work on uh, going forward. I, I should put more effort into sealed deck, but it's so hard because none of the sealed deck formats have been good lately. So it's, it's frustrating awesome. in some ways. I, I didn't play much Dominaria sealed. I drafted a bunch, but for whatever reason, I didn't return to sealed. I think I just didn't have any Dominaria GPs to go to, so I had no reason to prep for sealed. Yeah, and that's understandable, but Dom, Dom sealed was actually good. Okay, that's fair. I, I guess I'm sad I missed out on that then, um, because on the whole, I have not been super pleased with sealed lately. Uh, but I'll work on that going forward. It's definitely something I'm, I'm going to try and devote some time to. Jared Mazan asks, how do you manage your in-game pauses most effectively? Is this like a... Your opponent casts like a spell that's going to kill you and you pause like you have a counter spell, even though you don't, because that Bush League crap needs to stop. I, I read it as Modo, but I, I don't know if that's just like my own prejudices and suppositions reading into the question. I, I thought he was actually looking for advice on how to set up your pauses on Modo, but maybe it's something totally different. There is, Either way, there is exactly one correct setup for Modo. It is my main. Their beginning of combat, both attacks, both blocks, your second main, their end of turn. That's it. Do you want to guess what my setup is? All. <laughs> yeah, I'll stop. Because you're the worst. Yes. Agreed. 
The problem is at this point, muscle memory. It's it's not that I believe that to be the optimal way to approach it. It's that I've had it for so long. This is one of those instances where you're making a stupid excuse to try and justify like something that is comfortable to you rather than something that is optimal. Probably true. And I have lost many games to my clock and obviously pauses play into that. So tomorrow... I will sit down and reconfigure my stops. I am taking action right now to fight this excuse making. As a good example to the game podcast listeners, my stops will be changing as of tomorrow. If you see me on moto and I'm stopping in every single phase, you have the right to yell at me. I, I give full permission at this point. So uh, part of this part of this should play into your empathy where like you have timed out. And while you have timed out, you've also spent a lot of your opponent's time your opponent probably did not like it when you were sitting there, you know, just like clicking F2 17 times per turn, right? Like you are effectively wasting your time. You are stealing minutes of your opponent's life for no reason. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess you could make that argument. I, I do aggressively F6 and F8. Right. But why stop on every upkeep versus the one time you want to do something in an upkeep, you turn just that stop. stop. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good habit to get into. I, I honestly, I can't defend the way I've approached it because it is net negative, and I am sure of that. Joe, Joe also has all of his stops on, and it, like I make fun of him for it. I'm just like, you know, why do you do this? And he's just like, oh, like you know, cause whatever, and it just like doesn't give me a reason. No, because there's there's and, no real good reason. I mean, obviously, right. you can come up with corner cases where you need to act in that phase, but if you identify that coming up, you just set a stop. Right. It's not that hard. And now he just like mocks me with it. And it's just like, okay, man, like this is one instance where I know for a fact that I am right, that these seven stops or whatever I have are the only ones that you need. There's, there's a lot of us out there. And you know that there's, there's many all stoppers. You're all crazy people. You, you're, you're doing the antithesis of like what makes games like Hearthstone and Shadowverse so good and like what makes Arena kind of bad. Why are you doing this to yourself? Like, I want to spend as least amount, the least amount of time, like, on Moto playing, like, the most amount of games, right? And you're just, you're doing the opposite of that. Why? Years and years of habit. That's, that's the only thing I can come up with. I, I, I physically feel uncomfortable when I'm playing without the stops. Like, it, it makes me feel not at ease. But that's just something you have to work through. Oh, my God. I feel liberated. Just cruising through all the stops. You love it. It's like no stop signs. Yeah, it's night and day. It's night and day. Uh, anyway, if, if this is the in-game pause, like pause to bluff a counterspell or whatever, you need to focus on making uh, better decisions outside of this Bush League stuff before you can even think of like, ooh, how can I next level people now? You're going to get way more dividends off of figuring out how to play well and build your decks well and things like that rather than trying to trick your opponents. Agree. And... Uh, Evan Appleton asks, what is the weakest link in your game or the strongest? Uh, my weakest, I think, is probably metagaming slash deck selection and strongest. Well, like weakest also is kind of just like going a little too deep down the rabbit hole. It's like, oh, like if everyone is doing this, I should be doing this. But then if I'm doing this, everyone else should be doing this. Therefore, I have to do that. It's like, no, I have to stop that like leveling system at some point mm -hmm. and just just stop and like play the best deck or whatever, right? Uh, strongest is probably building a good sideboard because, again, like constructed decks should have plans, uh, not necessarily all the same plan all the time. 
You can actually have multiple plans and be successful, but post-board, you need to tailor your deck against your opponent's deck. And I think I am pretty good at figuring out the best way to do that with the restrictions that sideboards have with only giving you 15 cards to work with. Because you can either save sideboard slots by consolidating things. Like, say you want to play Shatter and Shock in your sideboard. It's like, oh, maybe I should play Colagon's Command. And then it's like, oh, this Colagon's Command is a hell of a card. Maybe I should just play it in my main deck. And then, like, you know, you, you just saved, like, two sideboard cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's... Excellent advice and good analysis. I feel like I already answered this question somehow earlier in this discussion, but weakest link in my game is like turn to turn decision making, you know, playing out my turn in optimal fashion, be it order of operations, things like that. Uh, Strongest aspect of my game is long term planning, Uh, seeing the game, you know, eight, nine turns down the road uh, is definitely something I do very well. Chris G asks, thoughts on learning via listening to podcasts via other means? I think it varies for each person and it also varies depending on what sort of content you're trying to consume because of like what things you're trying to learn. If you already play a bunch of Moto and you think you have a good grasp on the metagame, it's like, well, you know, we're, we're basically talking about the metagame like every week and like getting a second opinion secondly helps. And it's nice to know that you're on the same page as other people and everything maybe this podcast isn't for you. Like when, when people like Owen tell me that they listen to the podcast, it's like, why? I don't understand. It's probably for our charming personalities and witty banter, but obviously. And, and to hear if we mention his name, that's true. As far as uh, podcast versus other means, I I think this is honestly just a per person question. Uh, We talked a lot about everyone learning differently. Uh, For me, I would say I learn more effectively via written word than podcast, but I hope our listeners find our podcast the best way to learn. I mean, that's my goal is to literally teach as much as possible in as little little time as possible. That's always what I've wanted to do here with our podcast. And hopefully we achieve that for a bunch of people. Yeah, it's it's digital age too. And, you know, if you're playing magic on your own time and then you listen to the podcast and we kind of like steer you in a direction to go with your decision making, then... I think that helps. And if you get to do that while also doing something else, like driving to work, then, you know, you, you just killed two birds with one stone. Right. So right. I, and that's, that's the age that we live in. Like time is the most important thing. It is like the scarcest resource for a lot of people. Spot on. Clouded page asks, which players do you look up to? Which content creators do you follow slash admire? Uh, there are a lot of people that make excellent content. I'm sure that people are aware of them probably. Uh, what players do you look up to? I don't know. I think there there are people like, you know, Reed and Huey and Paul Rietzel and just like these these people who are capable of doing things that I can't do or I think that they do better than me. Yeah, I, I mean, there's just so many, so many people that come to mind. A lot of really intelligent people that I've come across in the years playing Magic who, you know, find ways to impress me not only with their in-game play, both with thoughtful writing, thoughtful content creation, Really just too many people to mention. As far as content creators that I follow and admire, I'll always mention KYT as being someone who, you know, really built a community from the ground up and who cares a lot about every single person who takes in his content. And I really respect that. And it kind of influences the way I've approached working here on the game podcast. You know, he always puts his listeners first. I try and do the same thing here. Um, so I have to give him a shout out for that. Dope. Nick D asks, what was the moment you realized that magic was going to be what you do for a living? 
I, I, I don't know. Magic was just a thing that I did and I tried to make money off it because I would rather be doing magic related things than working a nine to five. And I, for the most part, aside from like a few years, like dealing poker and running poker rooms and stuff like that, like I've basically just stuck with it and more people have been playing magic and then, you know, more, more money just like got infused into magic and I would get more raises for writing articles and stuff. And then, yeah, eventually I was comfortable. I I don't know that I've had this moment yet. Yeah. I do. I do think I've had the moment where like, I know I want to create something. That's what I want to do for a living. I think magic is certainly where my focus lies right now. I love it, but I don't know that necessarily magic is the only thing I want to do for a living. I, I haven't narrowed things down that much. VTCLA asks, which invitational wacky style formats would you want at Worlds? I I wouldn't want this at Worlds. I would want it like at an invitational. But uh, aside from that, I'm also a better developer than I am a designer. So I can't come up with like crazy magic formats. It's just not what I do. Let's go with type four. Did you ever play type four before? Yeah, and I I wouldn't want to play that. That format sucks. I I don't want to play it. I want to watch it. I won't be at Worlds. Let's be serious. So now I get to see someone else play it. Yeah. Is that it? Is that all you got? That's all I have. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I have a deep encyclopedia of wacky formats. That and like Backdraft were the only two to come to mind. And I'd rather see Type 4 than Backdraft. So Gross. Retro asks, is more information bad for the health of competitive MTG? Ironic, given their screen name. I think that is awesome. I think if Magic went back to the Dark Ages, right? Like the internet got destroyed somehow. Or like... You know, we we all forgot. We we get, we wake up one day, our memory of the internet is erased. We we can no longer access it, and we never knew it existed. I think, yeah, magic would be way better. I mean, it, it might be like less popular, which was kind of the issue, right? It's like you got to spread that love and awareness somehow. But if people have no idea what's going on, and every time you play against someone, it's like a new experience because everyone has their own deck, then yeah, like magic's way better. But if there's like some in between, where like Maybe there should be less information than what we have. Like, I, it's too hard to say. Yeah, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? Yep. So once it's out, may as well let it all the way out, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm pretty comfortable with the flow of information right now. Things feel pretty good to me. So I wouldn't really change anything up as far as flow of information goes. Austin Cook asks, which format has helped you improve the most? Outside of limited, just in general, being able to teach creature combat and deck building and sideboarding in ways that constructed didn't really, I don't know. I think any format where like all of the the boxes have been checked and like all sorts of different strategies are viable are, are the ones that teach you the most because it's like, all right, I have this deck and I have all the tools at my disposal and this is the metagame. All these decks are doing wildly different things. Like what do I do? And there's a lot of ways to approach that. It's like, well, I just, you know, change my sideboard or I have a transformational sideboard or I pick a different deck or I build a new deck that uh, ignores basically what everyone is doing. And, you know, like those sorts of things. Whereas if a format is like all mid-range decks, like you're you're going to improve the more you play it. That's just like going to happen. But you're not going to learn as much. Yeah, that sounds like a good answer to me. I, I guess... I'll give a just a brief answer. My answer would be legacy, just in terms of long-term planning. I think knowing what's going to happen in a legacy game three, four turns down the road is so important. 
Um, you always have to be playing towards a certain goal, especially in like legacy blue mirrors and, you know, thinking about wasteland and things like that. There's a lot of factors to plan around across multiple turns. Um, and I found that playing a lot of legacy early in my return to competitive magic helped almost at times made standard magic feel a little bit more simpler, yeah. um, a little bit more approachable. So I, I would go with legacy. Jamie Moffat asks, you're creating a new format. What would it be? Uh, again, pretty, pretty bad designer, okay developer, right? Like if you give me a pitch, I would be like, well, it has these issues, right? And maybe here are some potential ways to solve those issues. But as far as like coming up with a thing off the top of my head, like, I don't know. I do think that magic could benefit from a format that is fun uh, that does involve like purchasing boosters and opening them, right? Like that is Watsi's ultimate goal is like to get people to buy more booster packs. I think what they should probably work on doing is trying to make limited fun, trying to make it a thing that people actually want to do instead of only do it because it's like a chore and there's a tournament coming up that they want to play in because there's some light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like there's either money to be won or a pro tour invite or something on the line that they want. And they're willing to go through what is essentially hell playing limited to do that. Yeah. Limited used to be so great. It kind of makes me sad thinking back on it, but no, see, uh, limited is still good. It is still fine, but like people have gotten to cube and like do all this busted rad stuff. They've gotten to play modern masters one and vintage masters and like all these cool formats. And then you go play core 19 sealed. Like, who in their right mind is going to be like, oh, I really enjoyed that. Let's do it again. Yeah, I don't I don't have an answer to that. I certainly did, did not pick up any core 19 sealed. As far as the question here, I, I would, would again point back to the no shuffle format. I don't know if that's good. I don't know what it looks like. Um, it's just an interesting thought experiment to me. And I think you can do a lot in terms of coverage. So I'd want to try it out. Yeah, I'm down with that. VTCLA uh, asks, would you do better with perfect public metagame data or none? I think the top, you know, 5% of players would absolutely crush it with no data. Perfect public metagame data, like that would certainly help me, but I, I still think I would probably do better with none. Yeah, I would do better with none. I, I think that's where my biggest edge lies is, uh, you know, effectively reading a metagame and getting a step ahead. So I, I don't want those numbers necessarily out there. Can you imagine going to a tournament and like people not just being able to copy like a red black aggro deck and just immediately be at least 45% against you. It'd be a crazy world. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We're never getting back to it. It, it sounds like such a cool thing, but very, very far away from reality. Yep. Clouded page asks, how do you balance MTG slash personal stuff? Are you dating slash married? Uh, you are married. I'm currently dating. The person I am dating also goes to magic tournaments. So you know, it, it works out pretty easily for me and for us in general, but yeah, that sounds like a, a pretty good situation as, as far as a dating relationship goes for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, what's, what's your take on all this? Uh, being married is great. I'm, I'm super happy that I'm married and don't have to worry about this. I love my wife. We understand each other's lifestyles very well. It just balances naturally. Our relationship has always been very easy. We've always gotten along very well. We've always understood each other very well. And that extends to magic and my desires to play magic and all the stuff that comes with it. She just gets me and I get her. So, you know, it's nice to, it's nice to have a perfect situation. I don't have useful advice for people in non-perfect situations, though, unfortunately. Word. I mean, that that's part of it, though, right? It's just like caring about the person and understanding them to the point where like 
you understand why they want to do the thing that they want to do and like to some degree need to do the thing that they want to do and are therefore like supportive of them doing that right oh, but it's yeah. like when you're in a situation and you're just, you're just like yo honey i want to go out and play magic and it's just like oh like you like magic more than me or whatever it's just like that person does not get you they do not understand how much you know you enjoy magic and want to do it they do not necessarily have your best interest in mind if they want you to be happy Right. And like the reverse could be true where it's like, well, you already played magic four times this week and you haven't spent any time with your kids or whatever. Like maybe you should scale it back. Right. There, there is a give and take. If you are with someone who is, you know, it's like being in, in high school or whatever. And like, you know, trying to date and, you know, when magic was like nerdy and uncool or whatever, and you would just like hide it from people. Mm-hmm. It's like, you can't have a relationship where y- you would prefer to like, rather not tell the person what you do. Right. Like, you need to find someone who is supportive of you and every aspect of you and gets you. Yeah. I, that, I mean, that's what the goal of dating is. So if you're hiding who you are while you're dating, then you know, what, what's the good outcome here? I, I don't get it. You need to be yourself and find someone who accepts you for yourself. In my case, it was interesting little tidbit. My wife was a competitive equestrian rider. So it's incredible the amount of parallels between competing at magic and competing at equestrian have. Um, first of all, there's like a huge expenditure where like in her case, it's a, a horse and training the horse and all the horse equipment and traveling to all these shows all over the place. There's almost no return. Like in a lot of these cases for horse competitions, there's like you're paying thousands of dollars to compete and your best case scenario is getting a ribbon. So when I tell her like there's potentially like $2,000 on the line, that sounds very exciting to her because she's competed in many tournaments where there's almost nothing on the line. Yeah. So, but there's a lot of parallels and she just immediately got the need for competition and you know the fact that financially it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but I still really cared about it. That clicked with her right away. Yeah. I mean, some people like go out to the bar every night and spend like a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Other people like buy magic cards. Who cares? Right. Uh, Anthony asks, you won the old Invitational. What card would you make? I would make uh, a badass red or white card for modern. Mid-range card. Mid-range card specifically. Someone asked this question before, and I I honestly couldn't come up with anything super exciting. I I think I would need to sit down and think about this one. I I don't have any quick answer for you. Yeah, it would probably use the graveyard. That's, That's the best I could give you at this point. Something interesting out of the graveyard. Uh, I'm down with interesting out of the graveyard, especially if that plays in standard. Yeah, I always like when like uh, the graveyard is functioning as a pertinent zone, but in clever ways, not just like I'm bringing this thing back from the graveyard. Right. Things like flashback are a little bit maligned and especially something like threshold is very maligned and, and probably rightfully so. It required a ton of bookkeeping. I do think it was interesting and there's probably cleaner ways to do interesting stuff using the graveyard. Uh, city's blessing is kind of like, I don't know. It's just awesome. I, it it is my favorite mechanic in a long time. I do like that. Once you hit it, you're just there forever. Right. And I think that delirium could have benefited from that to some degree. That's really interesting. I, in a perfectly tracked world, I would be into city's blessing. Uh, I think the initial implementation was flawed and that colored my opinion of it. 
Like the fact that it was just like, oh, do you tell them? Don't you tell them? I had a a huge problem with that. And I think it was that was was rancid. Yeah, I I think it was rightfully corrected. So I honestly haven't like stopped and reevaluated City's Blessing since since things got cleaned up from a mechanical standpoint. Uh, I don't think I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites, but it's, it's certainly better than it was at implementation. Snook asks, what's the most efficient way to test a matchup? My best advice, I think, for this is go in with a plan of knowing what you're trying to learn. So you're like, all right, I'm playing red-black aggro against mono-blue paradoxical outcome. Given, like, stock lists, what is the true matchup like? Like, your opponent's playing well and uh, you're playing well, right? And you both understand the matchup. Like, what is the true matchup actually like and who is favored and why? And then it's like, okay, is there a way that, you know, given that one of these decks is going to be prevalent in the the next tournament and you're actually concerned about it, is like, is there a way I can gain an edge here that is valuable and matters without sacrificing too much of the other stuff? It's just stuff like that. It's like, what are you trying to learn and why? And then you go about doing it. It's not playing games and then, oh, what did we learn afterward? It's about having questions that you're trying to have answered and then just do it, figure out a way to learn it. Yeah, I think that's spot on. There needs to be a goal of your testing process. And I don't think in most cases, determining a matchup percentage is one, a realistic goal or two, a useful goal. I think it's good to have a sense of, oh, this deck's probably slightly favored or this deck's a slight underdog. That That's fine. But you can get that sense pretty quickly. You don't have to play many games before you understand like, okay, this deck's advantaged here. How does this affect the metagame? So on and so forth. I, I do think more nuanced things are really the takeaways that you should be seeking from playtesting. Is this sideboard card good in the matchup? If I have this card in my deck, does that fundamentally change the matchup? Like, Make these small adjustments now and use that as a way to do something different going forward. Because I hate just playing a matchup for the sake of playing a matchup. Like there has to be something more to a playtesting session than that. Yeah, magic is fun and people get too caught up in doing the fun aspect of it under the guise of doing work without actually doing the work. Right. You're not actually taking anything away, just jamming the two decks against each other and coming up with an approximate percentage, which may or may not be influenced by player scale, uh, variance, a million other things that we've talked about at length. Yep. Liam asks, what's your top five U.S. cities to travel to? I really like Columbus. Uh, Seattle, before I lived here, I think would be on that list. San Diego. Minneapolis is decent because I know a reasonable amount about the city. There's got to be like some Northeast places. I I generally just like the Northeast. Yeah, I think I, now that I live in Seattle, uh, I I can't use the Pacific Northwest really anymore because this was this in Vancouver were my two spots. Um, Although I, I am a new convert to Seattle. I hadn't been here until I found out I was moving here and it turns out it's dope. So lucky me. But as far as places... Outside this region, Nashville comes to mind as one of my favorite places to travel to. Nashville's cool. San Diego is a good one for sure. Uh, I was just in San Diego, had a good time. I drove through Twin Falls, Idaho once, and it was it was decent. Okay, that was not one I expected to make the list, but good for you. I'm glad oh, you had a good know. time there. Yeah, I was just like, oh, this place looks fairly pleasant. The people are pretty nice, and it looked like it was uh, building up like pretty quickly. Okay. You know, like a bunch of new things were going up. There's like an actual word for that, but whatever. DC. I like DC most times when I go there. It can be a little awkward getting around, but on the whole, I I generally have pleasant times in DC. 
Yeah, that's all that's really coming to mind. I think one thing you realize the more you travel around the US is that everywhere is kind of the same. Yeah. It's all the same stuff in like different guises and has a lot more to do with like weather than anything else. That like more than anything, weather defines a city to me. Um, so if you've got good weather, I'm probably into your city. Austin Cook asks, favorite deck and how did it help you improve? I don't have a good answer for this because if it helped me improve, it probably wasn't my favorite deck. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that does make sense. Your favorite deck would be the one that you just had mastery over and and really loved. I think I can give an answer. I would say miracles in legacy. Again, same type of long-term planning type stuff, thinking many, many turns ahead and also requiring me to tighten up my operations a little bit because I, I do think miracles was a very uh, operations intensive deck. Uh, and I played it a bunch and had a lot of success with it. So that's that's my quick thought as far as an answer there. Yo, hot take on miracles being operation intensive. What? that You don't feel that it is operation intensive? <laughs> No, obviously it is. They ban top because of uh, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you have to understand someone like me who generally struggles with like just the physical operations of magic undertaking miracles was a huge ask. Uh, but I eventually got to a pretty competent place with it. If you have Sensei's divining top in your deck, you should probably have your upkeep set. Maybe that's where my stops came from. Maybe it's it's a holdover from Sensei's. No. Nope. Don't don't Not believe it. it. What about Vendillion Click? That's where my draw stops came from. Draw step Vendillion is probably not even correct a lot of the time. I am aware of that. I know it's what everyone defaults to, but I am certainly aware that you shouldn't always play it in the draw step. Dan Tracy asks, why doesn't Jerry love Scred Red? Well, that's because it's a bad deck. I like the idea of Snow. Scrying Cheats, I was happy to see that card pop up, but... On it's the not, whole. It's not good, though. No, no. It's it's like, again, outdated magic. Like, it, it was cool a long time ago, but it's hard to believe it's good these days. Scrying Sheets is like the worst card of all time. It's such a, a reasonable investment. It asks like a pretty big ask of you. And then, it, like, if you just like brick twice in a row, it's such a feel bad. How is that a magic card? I don't know about worst card of all time. Like, generally, when Scrying Sheets is involved, it's like a small piece of little extra value where you, or if you have mana inefficiency, you could take advantage of it. And I get that that's not everyone's thing, but worst magic card of all time is a a very large stretch when it comes to scrying cheats. VTCLA asks, what card do you most want reprinted in Ravnica three? Pack rat. Boom. Done. Stop. Come on. (laughs) I just just want to ruin the format for everyone. That's my goal. Uh, underground sea or wow. watery grave, rather. Okay, I was going to say underground sea would be a dramatic uh, departure from from current policies. Yeah, yeah all, that's way off brand in a lot of yeah. different ways. Yeah. Addisno asks, "Well, <laughs> this this question's insane." Control is asshole. Period. Why does Jerry hate? Question <laughs> mark. I don't even. I mean, I'm dying to hear your answer to this question. Dude, control is asshole and like also <laughs> not very good a lot of the time. I guess so. Clouded Page asks, how would you fix MTG coverage? That's another three hour podcast, my friend. I'm sorry. Yeah, we could say a lot about that. I'll do it in 30 seconds. Hire Cedric and Patrick. And then Jerry and I, we're feeling altruistic. We'll be your B team. And then it's fixed. Uh, that's that's reasonable. I, I think... 
realistically, what needs to happen is Wizards needs to figure out who their audience actually is and then cater to the majority of those people while trying to not offend everyone else. That makes sense. I would also like to see more done on the technology side of things as far as presenting the game uh, using proprietary platforms. And as I keep mentioning the shuffling idea and scanning cards and knowing basically what's coming off the top of the deck before it happens. I mean, this is weird, but that's that's a horrible idea. Why is it a horrible idea? Why would you want to know what's going to happen next? It's not that you, no, no, it's not that you want to show what happens next. It's just that you immediately have that information available. There's not like the awkward setup time where you wonder, oh, are the hands updated? It's just that card comes off the deck, boom, it's immediately added to the display. You know exactly what's in someone's hand. Can we try and cover like life totals and what phase we're in and what's happening in the game and cards in hand before we try and figure out what's also going to happen next? I would love all of these things to be appropriately covered. You know, what's funny is that as you talk about these things, obviously a suitable digital platform would handle all of this. And it's kind of a shame that I I don't think that's the direction we're headed. Yeah. Jake Dershimer asks, why does Jerry love Japanese cards? Is Brian into foreign cards? I basically just like the way they look. I like, I, I specifically enjoy the aesthetics of the Japanese language compared to like Chinese, Korean, Russian, any of that stuff. Like, Japanese is just S tier for me. Like, I I just like the way they look. I also like foreign cards. I particularly like Korean cards because I started trying to teach myself Korean for a little while. I got about as far as learning Hangul. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but basically the Korean symbols. So I, I know phonetically what most of the Korean symbols sound like. I don't really know any Korean words, though. So I like being able to at least look through the Korean cards and piecing together the syllables. I can't say what any of it means, though. VTCLA asks, what one card could you write an entire article about? A lot of them. A lot of cards. Yeah. I I don't know. Just like whenever a, a new card gets previewed or something, or even, you know, now we exist in a world with, you know, like Goblin Chain Whirler and Bomac Courier and just like these very polarizing cards... That's like, I could write articles on a lot of those sorts of cards in the vein of like Reed Duke's Thoughtseize article. Yeah, I I mean, I just think there's like limitless directions to go, even if your foundation is one card. It's it's very, it's a very easy article format to just be like, here's this card and all of the implications of this card and potential homes for this card. And then you can do, like you're saying, just strategic applications of that one card, proper play of that one card. Basically, you give me a card, I can probably write an article about it if it's constructed playable. And in some cases, if it's not, see Nexus of Fate, I could certainly write an article about (laughs) that card. Snook asks, is Bugler actually the nuts in humans or just hype? Nuts. Yeah. It is the nuts. I, I believe nuts. Game changer. David A, a.k.a. Char Asianable, Asianable, I don't know. One of those two. What is your advice for getting over the RPTQ hump? If you have plateaued or you have a hump that is self-imposed, there is a reason that once you make a grand pre-top eight or a PT top eight, the second one comes way easier because you're not focusing on being in the hump. Just treat every match the exact same. Stop putting all this external pressure on yourself for no reason and just do the work. Yeah. Uh, in most cases, if you're good enough to win the PPTQ that got you there, you're good enough to win the RPTQ. So, absolutely. No and hump. David, 
David is like he crushes magic online all the time. He is good enough. But like for whatever reason, you know, he's not playing magic online with uh, the same chip on his shoulder. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's as simple as self-belief. I'm good enough to do this. So uh, hopefully David will take this to heart. You are certainly good enough to win an RPTQ. Walty asks, when do you give up on brews? Never. Uh, Stop. Never. Pry them Uh, out of my cold, dead hands. Oh, geez. Uh, If it is apparent that it is hopeless or either not close enough to warrant the amount of time that it would take. If the payoff is there and you've found like a very strong powerful interaction maybe it it lines up well in the format or whatever and you're like oh if i can just like figure this last couple these last couple things out like maybe we'll have like an actual deck on our hands then maybe continue on with it but it's just like if it's if it's coming up short or if your hypothesis has tested negative or whatever like there are plenty of reasons to give up on it no this you're right i mean that was my clown shoes answer but honestly i know i, I, I think it's it's often pretty obvious to me when i have a brew whether it has potential. And I wish I could put into words what makes it so obvious. I mean, a lot of times it's just winning, but oftentimes it's winning in like a a convincing fashion where it's like, wow, my opponent really didn't have any options in this game. There is something here. I mean, that's kind of the feel I was getting when I first started playing Pull From Tomorrow Control. It's just like the format is not prepared for this style of deck whatsoever. And nobody has good options against it. That's the sense I got very early on playing that deck. And so it was very easy for me to lean into it. I I think it's in most cases, you should give up on your brews fairly quickly when you shouldn't be giving up on them will be obvious to you. That's the way I would answer that question. Sidananra asks, would outside sponsors change what events you go to? Uh, Short answer is yes. Longer answer is, I mean, it, it depends on like what I'm getting out of the sponsorship deal. Yeah. More, more sponsors in the game seems good. It's just, I don't know that there's eyes on the product that that's necessarily something that's going to happen, but I I do hope more sponsorship comes in because that's just a benefit to players. And it's hard to envision a huge push for this as things stand right now. I think the star city tour has done a very good job of bringing in some outside sponsors. Uh, I don't know if we're going to see the pro tour do the same thing because obviously it's a promotional product. Like it, it, there already is a sponsor and it's Wizards of the Coast and they want to advertise their brand above everything else as they should. So I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with this going forward. My guess is probably not a whole lot. Do I want Red Bull to sponsor me? Yes. I would like free Red Bull and I would like to rep their gear. Just, right? in, just in case anyone at Red Bull is listening, we do often talk about Red Bull in a favorable light. We have suggested many times that if we had a Red Bull sponsorship, we'd be the most willing endorsers of all time. So, you know, call us Red Bull. We're here. Do I think that Red Bull should sponsor me? Probably <laughs> not. It's probably not worth their time. Nice. I, like, I put on the hard sell and then this is what you do to me afterwards. Wow. The thing is, though, is like I would bust my ass for them. I I love their product. Whatever. Like I, I just like them. I take commitments like that very seriously. Uh, shout out to Legion Supplies. Yeah. I don't know. Like I, I would try to make it worth it for them the best I could. My My reach is... Vast within the scope of magic, but not vast within the scope of the world. And for that, I I apologize, Red Bull. Like, I am not up to snuff for who you should be shooting for because you are a quality product. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because Red Bull is very active in the sponsorship of the fighting game community in particular. And 
they certainly get more eyes on their product than magic tournaments do, but it's not by a dramatic, dramatic amount. Uh, like if you look at Twitch streams of fighting majors, I, I'm not 100% sure on this. I don't think I want to give any exact numbers, but I, I think they're fairly comparable to Pro Tour numbers. And Red Bull is all up in that scene. Like you see Red Bull everywhere when it comes to the fighting game community. So you never know. Maybe it'll be something they, they have interest in. TSM Red Bull Leffen has almost 200,000 followers on Twitter. That's interesting. I was thinking the Street Fighter context, and I I do watch a fair amount of Street Fighter, and I'm I'm just trying to remember like how many viewers the streams top out at. It could be they're even streamed in other areas that I don't know about. Maybe they stream more on YouTube, but I honestly feel like Twitch streams get in similar ranges to Magic Pro Tours. I could be mistaken though. Amnesiac only has 20,000 followers and he is uh, a recently crowned Red Bull athlete for Hearthstone. Okay. Well, you have more followers than that, right? I do. This seems like a no brainer then. But, but Hearthstone has more followers. Uh, that is true. Yes. So it is more worth it for them maybe to be present on Leffen's Twitter account because he causes a lot of drama and gets a lot of eyes on him versus like Amnesiac who just wins all the tournaments. Right. All right. I get that. So, yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I would do my best Red Bull. Good pitch. Tight. Uh, Matt Nelson is drinking at MTG sanctioned events, good or bad. There's a little bit that goes into this. Uh, for a while, there were no tournaments in Las Vegas, presumably because people thought it was too de- degenerate of an area and they didn't want Magic to be associated with that. And maybe they were worried about how people would conduct themselves and all that. And, you know, since then, they have tried Grand Prix in Las Vegas. As far as I know, they they have been fine. I don't think too many people have gotten themselves into trouble and all that. That said, if you are dropping your car, your kids off at a local card store, you probably don't want them around adults consuming alcohol. That's my guess. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I hate this. I don't really like being around drunk people all that much. I mean, I, I know a bunch of people will... Uh, enjoy this responsibly. Obviously, I have no problem with that. I also know there are people who won't enjoy this responsibly, and I don't really want to spend any time with them. Just just from my own selfish perspective, I'm disappointed that I don't really have a choice in the matter anymore. So I, I wish this didn't come to fruition. I get that a lot of people enjoy it. So it's okay if I'm a little disappointed with it and everyone else benefits. Just not my not my jam. Yeah, I'm I'm worried about the potential consequences. I do hope that, you know, people just enjoy this privilege very responsibly. I I hope it, you know, nothing nothing bad comes of it basically, but oh, I don't know. It's it's risky. I think so too. Matt Nelson asked, "What is the best MTG tournament pump-up jam?" Uh, I don't I don't really have a go-to song. It basically depends on what I'm listening to at the time. A lot of my music is generally pretty upbeat, so it, it could be basically anything. That's incorrect. Uh, the correct answer is Dreamhouse by Deaf Heaven. That is the correct song to listen to before a magic tournament, and I will be taking no further submissions on this. <laughs> uh, all right, fair enough. Renesai asked, for or against changing the four of rule and why? I've, I've played a bunch of different games with different rules. Some of them have had mana and some have not uh i i really think that you need an argument to change the rule before even 
entertaining things like this. Like I generally don't like the like, Oh, if it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it or whatever. Cause things can always be iterated and improved upon. Just in this case, I'm not really seeing a reason why you would play, you know, three ofs or five ofs or whatever. Yeah. Not seeing a lot of reason for a change either. I have talked about in the past, maybe like things you could do with the legendary rule, uh, particularly once planeswalkers became legendary, I would posit, well, what does the format look like if you only have one of each planeswalker in your deck in the time of Gideon ally of Zendikar being a four of and Mardu vehicles and being very swingy and very draw uh, play draw dependent. It was something I, I bounced around an idea. What does this look like? It probably just makes things a little bit more variance prone and doesn't really accomplish all that much. Maybe more diversity in play patterns, but it's a very narrow problem, and I don't think it's one that necessarily needs a solution right now. There, you can just design planeswalkers to not be so swingy, uh, and, and generally they are in a better place now than they were in the time of Gideon. So I don't think there's any real reason to do a change here. Oh, my opponent drew their one Liliana the Veil, both games two and three or whatever. It's like, that alone is pretty dumb. I don't like that. And I also don't like the fact where it's like, oh man, I opened this one of Karn or whatever. And then it's like, well, guess I don't need any more Karns. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, you've certainly seen other games employ like this strategy. Obviously, Hearthstone has the one legendary per deck rule. And, and from a flavor standpoint, you could get on board with only having one of these things in your deck. But you're right. There's other problems that come with it. Uh, that's why I ultimately fall to leave things as they are. Yeah, I don't like the idea of let's make these really sweet legendary cards that people really want. And then they make them build arounds and then you build your deck around it and then you never draw it. And you only have one copy. Yeah. Yeah. It's problematic. Hate it. Liam asked, who would you most like to work with next? Uh, Honestly, I've, I've basically worked with everyone at this point. I don't know. Like I, I would like to try uh, some amount of like cherry picking and like trying to build my own team or whatever, but it's just like, Basically, everyone has a team that they like at this point. I don't see a reason why they would leave their team to work with me, especially if it would be like my ragtag crew, you know? Right. There's a lot of inertia as far as choosing teams go. I don't think I have an answer to this. Maybe Sam Black. You've worked with Sam Black before. Obviously, you know what that's like better than I do. But I I really like his approach to deck building. I think it would be interesting to see, you know, how he prepares for a pro tour. Sam is a delight and he is very self-aware. Like there are times where he's in his corner, like building his hidden stockpile deck and he's like, guys, just ignore what I'm doing. That's good. That's a very useful thing to have in your brewer. Right. And then there are times when he's winning with John Death Shadow and he's like, okay, guys, seriously, I never do this, but you should definitely play the deck that I'm doing. Yeah, you can't ask for anything more from someone who's going to work on wacky ideas than to not bother you with his wacky ideas when they're not coming to a a good place. Yeah. KFiz asks, when and how did you first decide to be competitive? Uh, I was playing magic almost every day at the end of the hall during lunch in school and then occasionally like after school. And uh, one of my friends told me about magic tournaments and I was like, wait, they have those? Like, obviously I want to go. So it was just like, I, I decided when I knew that tournaments existed. Yeah. As soon as I knew a tournament existed, then I was competing. That's just the way I approach things. If there's a competition to be had, I'm going to engage in it. Corey asks, what was the first competitive event you went to? And yeah, it was, you know, just some dinky card store tournament. 
the first sanctioned event I played in was the Invasion pre-release. My first competitive event was a Type 2 tournament, probably in, I think it was probably 95. I know Alliances had just come out, so that would be 95, right? Dude, I don't know. I wasn't playing Magic back then. You old. Oh, I am so old. It was in 1995 at the Warnerville Roller Rink, which was a dumpy little roller rink, like one town over from where I grew up. I don't think there was like any real tournament structure and it was utter nonsense and certainly no judges and probably lots of cheating and uh, a lot of, you know, not very real decks, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. I can remember some of the decks I faced for sure. I remember one of my opponents had a life lace in his deck, not really doing anything. It was just a, a random life lace in the wild. And I played red, green, like aggro with orcish lumberjacks and Yavamaya ants as the Smart. defining cards. Yeah, those two go really well together. I don't know if you yeah. knew that, but uh, yeah, yep, yep. That's where uh, that's where I was at for my first tournament. But a very, uh, very different world back then. Yeah, my first tournament was extended. I played some mono black deck. I think it was Contamination, like Contamination Nether Spirit. Okay. And uh, one of my opponents was playing uh, Survival Recurring Nightmare, and they definitely cheated against me. When I found out like how the rules worked, basically, like months later, I was so mad. Oh, I actually just remembered I also had half my collection stolen at this first tournament I ever went to. Damn. I think I had repressed that, and it, <laughs> it just came back to me right now. But yeah, some kids from like a town over like sorted through my binder under the auspice of wanting to trade and took a bunch of my magic cards. Nice. And then I came back for more. <laughs> You'd think with that experience, I would have been pushed away, but I knew I wanted to play more magic. So I, I definitely was at the roller rink in the future as well. Yeah. Uh, Corey also asked, would you change sideboard sizes? Uh, similarly uh, to the four of question above, like why? Is there a reason to? I mean, I think sideboard sizes work pretty well, at least for standard. And then for modern, you can maybe make a case for it. But like, again, I don't, people complain about it, but I don't see the need to like have answers for everything. Like it is interesting to attempt to consolidate sideboard slots and be like, oh, uh, can I dedicate like, you know, three ley lines and three stony silences or whatever. And like actually have to make those decisions, right? Like that is interesting. Yeah, this was a very in vogue topic for a, a long time when it came to modern and a potential way to correct what ailed the format. But I think the format just corrected itself and is in a pretty good place and not really something we have to consider anymore. So uh, no, I would not change sideboard sizes. Uh, everything seems fine as far as that goes right now. Karthak asks, Brian, excluding Jerry, who are your favorite play partners and why? I guess I would call back to the guys I mentioned earlier in the show. You know, not people I've played with a ton, but I enjoyed my experience with them. I always enjoyed playing with Max Brown. We've played together a bunch, both as teammates and playtesting against each other. Uh, playing with my family, my brother, my cousin. We always had a good time when we drafted together. So, yeah, that's that's who comes to mind right away. Chris Malecki asks, cookies or cake? Can it be both? Because I, I think it's both. I eat cookies more often than I eat cake, but I think I, I enjoy cake more. It's just like, it's so easy to make cookies or just like, you know, buy cookies from a store or whatever. And just like, you have to buy an entire cake in order to have like one piece of cake. No, you can buy cake by the slice in most stores at this point. What? 
Yeah, absolutely. Any bakery will sell you cake by the slice. I, I literally just bought a slice of cake on Sunday. So I am aware of this and enjoyed a slice of cake and it was very good. Damn. Yeah, just go to a bakery, man. They'll, they'll give you a slice of cake. I promise. Damn. All right. Op- I just opened up a whole new world to you, a world of cakes. Yeah. Uh, Austin Cook asks, favorite ice cream flavor? Uh, I'm pretty partial to uh, just like vanilla or cookies and cream. I am a, a plain kind of person. But recently, uh, check this out. On my flight from Seattle to Tokyo, for whatever reason, they gave us <laughs> they gave us the like Ben and Jerry's uh, like random flavored ice cream, you know? Okay. And the flavor they gave us was Stephen Colbert's Americone Dream. Oh, it's so good. That's such a good yeah. ice cream. Yeah, dude. I, I, I actually just want to go to the store now and like <laughs> buy a tub of that. When I, it's not often I buy Ben and Jerry's, but when I do, I get Americone Dream and it is fantastic. As far as like favorite flavor, I generally am a vanilla guy. Although lately I've been going to this homemade ice cream place up in Redmond and I don't remember what it's called, but I go there and I get a flavor called Yeti, which is like vanilla with granola and like candied almonds and all kinds of delicious stuff. And it's really, really good. Okay. Austin also asked favorite card you expected to see play, but didn't. I'm sure there's a good answer for this, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Yeah. The first card I thought of was Necrotic Ruse, but I mean, it, it did see play. Not as many spots as I thought it would, uh, and still not really any spots to this day. Uh, it seems like there should be a home for Necrotic Ooze somewhere in modern, but uh, maybe it's just too expensive and a little too goofy. Uh, so that'll be my answer. It saw some play. I, I feel like it should see some more somewhere. Yeah, it's one of those cards that should get better over time, too. Absolutely, yeah. Baron of Bacon asked some trolley questions. Uh, do y'all meme in group chats? If so, how hard? The answer is no. Yeah, I would say I'm a fairly light memer. I'm not uh, immune to them, but I don't meme particularly hard. I think I'm too old to really meme hard. Like uh, that's that's for the younger generation, not me. Baron of Bacon also asks. My girlfriend asked, "Should Sean get off his phone?" I assume you're Sean. If if so, probably because you asked this question like five hours ago, and I assume you're still on your phone. Yeah, that would be bad if you were still sitting there at this point, uh, waiting for us to answer breathlessly. Uh, sorry, Sean's girlfriend. He should have been off his phone a long time ago. Your girlfriend sounds kind of savage, though. I like it. Yeah, way to get involved. <laughs> Monkey Manu asks, most annoying thing while traveling for Magic tournaments? Uh, traveling. Yeah, going back, I, I think I said this earlier, just waiting in line to like get on the plane and get off the plane. All that stuff is very annoying. Yeah, the loss of time. Uh, Jacob Birch asks, what do you want on your tombstone? Italian sausage. I already answered that. Yeah, I don't want a tombstone. I mean, I, I'm not saying I won't eat it. It's fine. All pizza's fine, but I'd, I'd rather not. Chris Malecki asks a bunch of questions. What is the most rewarding part of MTG for you? I think solving the puzzle. Yep. Uh, worst beat you've had that still haunts you? Uh, I mean, I have had what you could probably consider to be bad beats, but ultimately, like they don't matter in the grand scheme of things because I probably also did something heinous in that tournament. And it's just like, man, did that heinous thing cause me to get into the situation where I got bad beated? And if I didn't do that heinous thing, maybe I would have just like, you know, won a bunch of rounds in the Swiss and been able to draw into top eight instead of like losing playing for top eight or whatever, you know, like 
there are always things that you could have done differently and focusing on like the bad beat you took when you like blew two other matches is probably not a good way to go about things. Yeah. I mean, r- random luck based beats do not haunt me. It's just, that's the way things go. Sometimes there's certainly losses that haunt me to some extent and situations that haunt me, but it, it's not really a beat. It's more of just things not going my way, making wrong decisions, making wrong deck choices, so on and so forth. Is standard the most enjoyable or a necessity for you? Uh, I think it's mostly necessity, but there have been times when I have not been enjoying standard and have just chosen to skip the events. And I think that that is a fine route to take. Modern is okay. Uh, it's like a like a solid B, B plus for me. Uh, I, I wish that there was like an A tier format, like an A tier constructed format, but you know, that's kind of why I liked old extended and, uh, kind of like old legacy and stuff like that. It's just like those, those tournaments were a lot of fun for me. And I liked, I liked the pieces that existed for solving the puzzle. And these, I kind of feel like, I don't know. I, I know what pieces like could exist. Right. So it's hard for me to register shock when I know that like lightning bolt exists. Right. Yeah, I get I get what you're saying. I agree with your point of sitting out standards. You know, we had a, f- a few tough years of standard very recently, and I sat out a lot and was very comfortable doing so. Uh, as far as A-tier formats, it'll be interesting to see how this legacy format shakes out. I- I'm certainly not declaring it A-tier right now. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. I do think it has the potential to be fairly interesting, though. It's just not going to be played all that much. So even if it's great, right. we, we, we may never know, which is a little frustrating. But on the whole, I, I think Standard's okay right now. I've, I've been mostly enjoying my time with Standard, so I'm okay putting in time with that. Legacy could be great, but the cards are very expensive. And like you said, it's not going to be played very much. So it's hard for me to really just dive into that. Yeah, I know. It's a sad state of affairs. I, I wish there was something to be done, but I just don't think there is. Uh, when were the glory days of magic? Are they now? Uh, I don't think so. Like, I don't know. When was the last boom that magic had? I mean, it's fairly recent, right? I need to look back over the set chronology, but we're not that far removed from it. Zendikar was a huge one. Cons did well, right? Yeah, maybe it was cons. Cons was basically awesome. And you're welcome. All Jerry's doing. He's taking full no, credit for it. No, but I was I was there. I didn't ruin it. That's true. You you did not ruin it. It came out very well. I think it doesn't feel like now is going to be looked at as a particularly high point in Magic history. I think seeds are being planted to build back up again, but there were some tough times recently, and we're now getting through that. Uh, Standard was really bad for a fairly extended period, and Modern was bad for a long time too, and. Just now, are we starting to claw our way out of that situation? So it's it's hard to identify these are the, as as the glory days, but nothing else really stands out to me as the glory days either. For me, glory days will always be like when I was learning magic, when I first was exposed yeah. to magic. I mean, like sitting in my yard, pouring over Inquest just to see every single car that possibly existed because I wanted to know everything that was out there. That's always what I'll remember and will be my glory days of magic. And and probably everyone has a very similar experience when you first pick up that game and you're in that moment of exploration. That's when magic will really resonate with you. Like there's still, there's days where the air smells a certain way and it triggers the memory of me learning magic. Like that's how ingrained that time was. 
uh, in my brain. There's just so many things that bring me back to that moment and that feeling of, wow, this is amazing. I can't wait to learn everything about this game. Uh, And I'm sure everyone has the same experience at very different times. Word. Austin Cook asks, ever have an MTG-related nightmare? It's like, I don't know. I mean, it's I'm, I almost certainly have. Like, you know, like maybe I was at a tournament and then, you know, Jason Voorhees showed up and like ripped my head <laughs> off my shoulders or whatever. But it wasn't ever like, oh, man, like I got blood mooned and that was awful. I have had many positive magic related dreams where like I win a pro tour or I, you know, win some tournament. I, that definitely happens I wouldn't say all the time, but I can recall it happening a bunch of times. I can't recall any bad magic dreams. So I'm not saying I've never had one, but they just are not coming to mind. Moosey asks, what's your favorite bad card? Uh, probably Exile into Darkness, although I'm, I'm mostly over it. What is what is Exile into Darkness? Oh, come on, man. Uh, 4B Sorcery. Target opponent sacrifices creature with cmc three or less at the beginning of your upkeep if you have more cards in hand than them return it to your hand huh okay i i guess my answer is nexus of fate that's going to remain my favorite bad card for quite some time ew scott van dyke asked do intentional draws slash intentional concessions belong in competitive magic the problem is is that you can't police right at least the concession aspect of it completely right? unavoidable and even the draw aspect, it's like we could both just agree to like stall each other. Like the the whole like concession thing, as long as everyone understands what's going on, it's like, hey, I need the pro points. Will you concede to me? And they're like, yes, I would love to concede to you, even though you're like playing for 200 bucks or whatever. And then, oh, lo and behold, you give them 250 out of the kindness of your heart, right? It's like if everyone understands what's going on, you can technically skirt that stuff even within the rules, which is not great. It's certainly not good. I mean, it, it compromises the integrity of the tournaments for sure. Yeah, it, it does. And I don't think there's a clean answer to it. And I think everything that they have tried has mostly been a failure. And I don't have a better solution. That's, that's the big problem here. And no one has come up with a better solution yet. If someone proposes a solution to this problem, I will listen to it. And I, then when the solution is clear and eloquent and generally benefits the game, I will say, Yes, intentional draws and concessions have no place in competitive magic. We need to be doing this thing instead. But I don't have that thing right now, and I don't think anyone else does. Yeah, the the best way to do it is like I don't I don't know why you would even be like anti ID necessarily. I don't know concessions. It's just like if you make it so that every match matters to some degree, everyone's always playing for something. Then in theory, concessions will happen far less frequently. Is that true though? Because like even. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like there's there's always incentives to be gamed, no matter how you distribute them. There's always a price, right? But if you can't discuss price and you're, you know, you're at the last GP of the year or whatever, or the last GP that you're going to go to, and you need the Planeswalker points to lock up two buys and your opponent's like playing for platinum or whatever, it's like, do you know that if you concede, your opponent is going to pay you enough that would be worth it? You know, so it's just like, as long as there's something on the line, it's just like, no, whatever, like we should just play. But again, this like this creates this whole situation where some people know the deal, some people don't. And like you knowing there's this unspoken agreement, you benefit from it. Uh, if you don't know it exists, you can't benefit from it. It's just weird and awkward. And I get why it would be nice to eliminate all of this stuff. But like I said, 
I, I haven't heard a solution. I like your your theory is correct. I I just don't know the implementation of it that actually deals with this problem. Uh, the implementation, at least for pro players, is to have them sign contracts to some degree. Either we are employees of Wizards of the Coast okay. and they are paying us stipends to attend their pro tours and do deck techs and things like create content for them and stuff like that. And part of the contract is, you know, we cannot collude. Like we have to play each tournament match to its natural conclusion. Like maybe that means eliminating IDs or not. But, you know, like there are things like that where it's just like if if Watsi is just like, yo, play ball, like a lot of people would, right? But it's just like we are not incentivized to do that because you bust your ass all year, make platinum, and then you get 12 grand. Like, and how much money did you spend to like get that 12K, right? It's just, it's so stupid. Right. There are problems with that. I I don't want to get into actual enforcement of contracts, but there are some problems with having that kind of contract in place, whether it's something you can actually agree upon, whether it's something that's actually enforceable uh, and definite enough in its terms. Right. But if if it's worth it, people are not going to try and skirt the line, right? They're not going to be like, oh, well, like this time I colluded, even though it could potentially be seen as a breach in my contract. Like they just won't risk it if there's enough Enough incentive for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's always a price, and uh, currently that price is not worth paying. Yeah, that seems to be the stance. Moosey asked, what is the biggest level up moment you've ever had? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't think about these things as like one specific instance, right? Right. Growth as a magic player is, is a slow, gradual process, and, and many, many things combined, basically. It's, it's not like this thing just happens overnight, this magical thing. I will say that attending my first Pro Tour was a very eye-opening experience. I think it did a lot to foster my desire to improve, um, but nothing magical happened where I went in one person and came out a different person. Uh, it, it was just a very eye-opening experience. Crute asks, how would you improve coverage of limited magic? Make the limited formats compelling. Make them fun. Make them fun to watch. Uh, make the cards not Grizzly Bear. That's a very good starting point. I would also point, I don't like when coverage of a draft jumps around to other draft pods where we saw none of the drafting. I think you really need to deep dive on one pod, uh, present everyone's draft, make sure you know kind of the narratives of that entire pod and follow the entire pod from the beginning to its conclusion. Also, just don't have the draft be like the player's hands looking at the cards. Like, you can have that be part of it, right? But it's just like, oh, like, he's looking at this card, and he's looking at this card, and then you put, like, one card up on the screen. You're able to do the draft viewer after the fact, right? Like, why don't you just have all the cards in the draft already on the computer, and you're able to, like, just, like, click buttons to show what people took and stuff like that? It's just so silly. Yeah, so you're able to actually track the entire content of the pack as soon as it arrives in the next person's hand, you're saying, and then you can display it like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does seem like a very easy fix. Essentially, you need a spotter at each spot at the table. That's fine. That's not a difficult they, thing they to do. They have that already. Right. And and then you just live stream that information into the coverage and make everything super clear, super easy to read. Again, a platform specifically for viewing Magic the Gathering would be extremely helpful here. You could zoom in on cards, read cards, do whatever you needed to do. Uh, with the cards in hand, it, it just seems like there needs to be some innovation, something to make it a little bit more accessible for the vast majority of watchers. 
Uh, Crude also asks, who are your top five magic writers? Uh, I, I don't know. Like, there, there are a lot of good ones. I'm not going to stack rank them right now. <laughs> I will give some all-time impact writers. Mike Flora is incredibly important. Back in the Dark Ages, uh, Chapin, we talked about before. Zvi, his articles taught me a ton. There's a bunch more. And there's tons of great writers working currently, but those are just three names that pop to mind as uh, really influential on my learning process. What are your non-gaming hobbies slash interests? Uh, I do mostly normal nerdy things like I read, watch TV, movies, anime, music, uh, stuff like that. Uh, same. I'm into all that stuff as well. And with some more sporting stuff thrown in, I I run. I run like five miles every day, which you wouldn't guess by looking at me, but uh, I, I do try and stay in some kind of shape. I snowboard some basketball. I lift some weights. I play guitar and then all the other stuff, the anime, video games, comic books, all that good stuff. What is the happiest, saddest, angriest you have been during a match? Why? This is this is just kind of pointless, I think. No place for emotion and magic. Get out of here with your feelings. No, it's it's not that. It's just like, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm happy when I win, but like, I'm not going to get like sad or angry over the the result of the match, you know? Uh, yeah, I, nothing comes to mind for saddest or angriest. I've certainly had happy experiences in my time playing magic. Absolute happiest. I would say winning my last round at my first GP and getting to play uh, the Pro Tour. That was really exciting and kind of well beyond my expectations. And I remember being very overwhelmed at the moment. Cool. Uh, maybe maybe happiest is after I won my top four match in Nationals. Okay. That's an interesting one, given all you've accomplished. Well, so when I won Amonkhet, I had like a horrible migraine starting like midday the day before. So, like, I, I finished the Swiss on day two, like, drew in the top eight, filled out paperwork, ordered pizza, already felt like garbage, uh, went home, threw up, had a slice of pizza, threw up again, and then just, like, passed out at 9 p.m. Yeah, that's and a, then, a like, tough context to be happy in, for sure. Yeah, so then, like, I had an entire migraine during the top eight, and I was just, like, trying to focus on not dying, and I grasped of darkness to four or five, and all this stuff, and it's just like, okay, like, I, I just want to be done playing Magic, you know? It's like... Okay, yeah, I won. I'll celebrate later, whatever. Okay. But like, yeah, at, at that time, like I I did not get to like, you know, enjoy the moment or whatever. Whereas like I won my top four match at Nationals and like immediately like ran over to Reed and hugged him, you know? No, I get, I, I get that. I was excited. I was, yeah, I was yeah. having Having explained it, it makes sense, you know, and circumstances mean the world. I mean, you know, like I, I gave my happiest time. It was essentially finishing 13th at a GP, which isn't that big of a deal. But in that moment, given expectations, that changed everything. And it, it made the emotions that, that much stronger. Yeah. Scott Van Dyke asks, what's your worst magic habit? I think I draw my cards really slowly. You do. Well, I mean, your your in-game mechanics are just slow. Yeah. So so general pace of play, I'd say. And it's not for any reason either. It's just like I do I don't I don't know. I, I have no, I have no justification for why I do things as slowly as I do. Yeah. What I said I mentioned something earlier. I just thought about it and then I I really oh, I I look over at other matches. I get bored too easily in my one match. That is a bad habit. I need to be double queuing. <laughs> Pika asks, is question time over? Yes. Question time is now officially over. For some background, it is now 
two something in the morning. We have been recording for the better part of what, eight hours now, right? With, God, I don't know, man. With a few breaks. This is certainly the longest question time we have ever participated in, but I think it was a pretty cool one. I hope that everyone enjoyed having all the questions answered this time. I do not know if I will ever be silly enough to commit to this again, because this was a lot of questions. But in, in this one instance, I hope, I hope it was illuminating for everyone. I mean, we did get to talk about some cool stuff, so I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm certainly happy about the episode, like how it turned out. If you somehow made it all the way to the end of this, like, good grief. If you're still listening to us prattle on three hours later as our voices crack and fade, I have all the respect in the world for you. I've had many glasses of water, but now it is time to say that's game. Good luck.